how far did you want to go? Um, I mean, <laughs> Mighty Interact is the pillar of fire unto heaven. Look, uh, right. CE5 right. Footprints of the Camel. Uh, I'm not sure how, how in-depth you wanted to get. Okay, okay, fair enough. Um, uh, we are bringing a guest into the studio today. Uh, one, um, how would you like to identify yourself, guest? Hello, world. I'm Norman Rafferty. He, him. And I'd like you to know that God is in my mind and the devil is in my pants. All right. Well, excellent. So, Torps and I have been throwing around an episode idea for a while here. Um, in particular, um, we uh, have something of a interest, albeit sort of like a one from a certain degree of distance, um, in the furry subculture. While uh, neither of us are furries, I, personally speaking, have a deep and abiding respect for their culture. Dressing up as an animal and having, and you know, doing a bunch of drugs and getting drunk and then having a bunch of weird sex is a long and storied tradition. Surely that's derivative. Surely that's, let's, let's look for it. Um, um, that's, I'm sure there's, there's straight edge furries as well. Who don't do oh, that. yes. It's, yes. That, I, that's I believe it that happens at a lot of sporting events. They have mascots. It's quite famous. Um, this is a topic that has been on our list of topics for like three years, along with John McAfee. But we haven't got to him yet. Life got to him first. Reptorial one. But we have... We can get to the furries. Yes. Yes. And, you know, um, luckily the tabletop role-playing game community has an abundance of uh, furries in it. There's a lot of overlap in that Venn diagram, as it turns out. So we kind of put our feelers out there. To see which of our friends uh, either were furries and were interested in coming on to discuss some the topic, or if any friends of friends were uh, interested in the topic. And as it turns out, that uh, Mr. Rafferty here not only is a member of this community, but he also has experience with the occult underground as well. Well, I, I, I have some caveats here. Uh, occult underground is a loaded term, so. In the, uh, I am old, and as an old person in the 80s and the 90s, I spent some time uh, in something known as the Society for Creative Anachronism, oh, which, yeah. is, which is not an occult organization. No, no, I, 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 I'm, yeah, explain what the Society of Creative Anachronism is uh, for It's a bunch of people, uh, they're beautiful people, it's a bunch of people who dress up in armor, and uh, this is before LARPs, like many of you have probably seen the video of Lightning Bolt, Lightning Bolt! No, before that, people got in suits, got padded swords, went out to the countryside of Pennsylvania, and hung out for three days, and hit each other with tennis balls and boffer sticks in giant organized battles and in duels. It was there that I started mixing with some of the people at the psychic festivals and some of the new age movement and got interested in mysticism. But I can't really claim to be part of the occult underground because I, while I have been around that and those formulaic systems got that, most of my experiences were, of course, in tabletop role-playing, which I've been active in since, like, 89. Uh, I've, wow. I've been working for conventions since then. I worked for the Origins Game Fair and the Origins... Uh, Gen, uh, sorry, I just said Origins. The Gen Con Affair, some of the largest gaming conventions. I then moved on to work for the Anthrocon convention uh, in the 2000s, which is a furry convention. 
And since then, I've, I've worked for several conventions. I've published a lot of material. I've published a lot of occult-adjacent material. Uh, I was briefly, I got to emphasize, briefly involved with Delta Green and Unknown Armies, which were uh, occult-themed. I did some illustrations for On the Edge, which is a William Burroughs? I'm not sure you call that a cult. Do you call William Burroughs a cult? Oh, Over the Edge? Well, there's On the Edge and there's Over the Edge. I, I believe I worked okay. on, on... Oh, oh on, on the, the Edge was the trading card game, right? Oh, no, then I worked for Over the Edge, which is a role-playing game. I apologize for mixing the two up. It's been no, you're fine. 25 you're fine. years. <laughs> there's also, like, sort of the adjacency because, you know, Greg Stolze and John Tynes were working on that, too. Yes. These are all kind of part of their sphere of influence and all the people are orbiting around them. Yes. Uh, and, and so I worked with them very briefly, but since, uh, mostly when I got into self-publishing, uh, starting in 97, we made a furry product, Iron Claw, because we wanted to go ahead and, uh, at the time, no one was making, like, furry RPGs. Like, like it, some people will point out, what about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? It's like, you know, that kind of counts, but no one was making a furry RPG, and we specifically were working towards that market. Since then, we've made a lot of books I'm very happy about. I mean, in a cult... Uh, circles we recently published abyss which is a splatterpunk occult themed game so if you uh, like a lot of violence uh, and that mm. sort of thing that's definitely uh, what we're doing but we're mostly like uh may I want to say a cult adjacent like I'm not you know I, I don't practice uh, I haven't done Garnerian stuff in uh, you know years and and so I'm not you know, uh, there might be better experts on that sort of thing. I'm mostly uh, a pop culture historian, and I, I do a lot of work that's related to that. But uh, I do want to, you know, caution that uh, there are much better experts on whatever is going on. I'm not even sure what's going on with Garnerian these days. Do people, are still people still doing that? I've seen a lot more movements toward the other canon Therian movements, which I'm not, you know, briefly talk about. Those are folks who have strongly identify with something else, which is related to magical thinking. Mm. And a lot of that is, you know, it's very personal. Like, I'm also seeing people who identify as multiple entities, people who, uh, fact kin is another one, where someone identifies as someone else that they recognize. A lot of this is magical thinking, but I'm not sure it necessarily counts as a cult. This is yeah, largely my, not, my area of, of interest. Yeah, there's not really any sort of theology or belief system behind it as opposed to something like Gardnerian. I was loosely familiar with those guys uh, way early on in like the early 2000s, and I think that was sort of the, towards the end of their period of influence. Right, the end of Bonewits. I don't think anyone really misses Bonewits. See, I'm not even sure what you're referring to there, to be honest. Bonewitz is an ex-member uh, of the Church of Satanist who also oh, wrote books okay. on magical theory. Kind of popular in the late 90s. Also hung out with some role-playing game people. Once again, not, you know, a big deal. Like, uh, that's why I feel, you know, like, uh, there are many things I'm qualified to talk about, but I, once, uh, I, I worry a little bit. Uh, some people take this very seriously and have very serious initiation rights. I'm also aware that neo-paganism uh, is, is both more inviting to more people and is getting rid of a lot of the cultural appropriation. New sentence, we also unfortunately have an influx of Odinists and uh, unfortunately people co-opting for white supremacists, 
which I've also been have, having to research to make sure that some of the symbols that we use and the products we make aren't co-opted. Yeah. The Thor's hammer, all that stuff. Right. That's going to be a, a continual process, though, because they'll just co-opt more. Yeah. It's very easy to co-opt. Yeah, they're looking for people to recruit, fundamentally. And you need well, to... and also related to this, we recently worked on a book on uh, piracy, and I know this is big in the, in the tabletop. Uh, scenes we you know we make Iron Claw, which is a fantasy game, and we wanted to do a Pacific Rim themed book. And one of the things that is hard to look at is, of course, the Colombian invasion, because a lot of the folk beliefs and religions, you know, not necessarily a cult, but actual yeah. religious practices of Islanders. I've got the problem where I'm looking at them through a post-Columbian perspective. So I'm getting the photo reference that's provided to us is that. You know, are the is this actual photos or are these staged for the tourists? Mm. You know, what's a co-opted yeah. image and what isn't? A lot of what passed into occult belief is nonsense Latin because, you know, folks who want to sell you something and sell you a magic charm that protects you against harm and stuff will put anything on it, abracadabra or, or random Latin phrases. So we had to spend a lot of time trying to separate actual indigenous beliefs from the sort of weird co-opting. And the question is, what is co-opting? Like, I'm not qualified to speak on Vodun, which is an actual, pra you know, a religious practice that people do, and that's a synchrisis between uh, uh, indigenous uh, beliefs and some Catholicist elements. It's a big muddy tarball, so, um, but I'm happy to talk today if you want to talk about <laughs> funny shit advice or something. <laughs> Yep, great. All right. Great. Well, you certainly proved well, your credentials here, sir. <laughs> Definitely an old head. We Definitely an old head. In a good way. In yes. the, best, the best way. Um, it's interesting because we have sort of covered this um, when we talk. We cover those aspects of when it comes down to cultural appropriation. We did an episode on a school of magic, which was a bit like that. It was the, the woo. What was that magic school called again? Oh, God. Friend? I don't even. Um, it wasn't even like a proper school, if I remember correctly, but um, like it's not like any Mancy or Turgy or anything like that. But yeah, I, I do remember which one you're referring to. Exoteric magic. Um, and it, it is always interesting to me when it comes down to belief, especially within a system like Anonami's, it's sort of like um, when it comes down to um, the, the way belief uh, um, shapes the universe... Um, like culturally appropriated, like complete misunderstandings and misconceptions about true religions can have an effect because if like 50 million white people have the wrong idea about dream catchers, is that going to have an effect? It's still a belief system, even though it's wrong in a way. Well, it's not accurate to what they actually were within the cultural milieu where they came from. They were absorbed and then messed with and completely appropriated and then people have weird ideas about them but does that is that make them less effective because that's a good question what's the difference between syncresis uh and uh cultural appropriation that's why i brought up like sort of like gardnerian witches if you get into neo-paganism a lot the you know historically uh, gardnerian wants to draw on celtic uh influences and People didn't write this stuff down. This was an oral tradition. So is what Gardner wrote down, you know, is that accurate? There were fights within the original 1890s uh, Golden Dawn Society 
uh, which splintered into different groups. That wacky Crowley wandering off and doing his own thing. Mather doing the, his own thing. Um, a, these, they're are they're often just making stuff up, or is it stuff uh, that's you know people actually practiced? What's new and what isn't? And after it sits and bakes for a hundred years, because you know we're, we're in the twenty first century already, what counts as magical belief and what doesn't? And these are big questions. That's why I want to emphasize that uh, I'm not here to cast. Well, I am here to cast judgment, but I apologize for it because. Uh, you know, it, uh, it, yeah, if, it, if it matters right. to you and it's your personal belief system, these are things you, you need to decide for yourself. Um, uh, please punch Absolutely. me if I say if I say things something like I'm just asking no, no, questions. No, 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 no. I think that like especially with syncretism versus cultural appropriation, it seems like syncretism just ends up being like cultural appropriation plus time, because when you look at like say for example the Roman religious milieu with all the mystery cults that they just purloined off areas that they conquered and like their entire pantheon was just like yoinked from the greeks it's there's it's been, there's a long history but we don't think of that as cultural appropriation because it's not relevant to our socio-political situation now but it kind of was i i like a lot of times if we're talking about a lot of fantasy literature and stuff sometimes this imagery just gets co-opted i mean uh, end of evangelion is in the news again <laughs> <laughs> Keep going, okay, yeah. and it's I mean, someone, I guess, had to bring it up. Yeah, so so go it's got it, go your it. Kabbalah tree of life yeah. imagery, which yeah. is uh, a serious image that's used by a lot of neo-pagans and, and Kabbalah and other religious stuff. Also aliens and scared children and giant robots. And all of it was consciously chosen by the showrunners to look cool. And that is the classical definition of cultural appropriation. We grabbed a bunch of imagery, put it together because it looks cool. And uh, I'm not sure what the makeup of mm -hmm. your audience is, but a lot of them will excuse it saying, oh no, it, it looks really cool, therefore we're going to excuse it. And that doesn't change the fact that the Kabbalah has a significant uh, mystical meaning to a lot of people over uh, quite a few centuries. So... Uh, I'm, I'm not sure what your thesis statement is today. Maybe you could uh, let me know uh, where, where we want to go with this discussion. So I want to make sure I stay on topic. So when I was referring to the occult underground, uh, of course the occult is part of that, but specifically I was referring to how you said that you have uh, experiences playing unknown armies and doing the playtest for that way back in the mid-90s. You, you've worked with uh, Tynes and Stolze in the past from the sound of things. Uh, this is correct. I'm listed as a uh, playtester in both Unknown Armies and Delta Green, if you know where to look. Uh, I'm not sure I would necessarily call that the occult underground. That's a bunch of nerds rolling funny-shaped dice. No, 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 it's absolutely true. We know that John Tynes and Greg Stolze both work for the government, and they put out a fake book which shows the truth about reality. That's, that's the thesis statement for this podcast. Okay. I've all, I've not worked directly with Tynes. I have met and read his stuff, and uh, I, I think it's to Tynes' credit that after the after Wizards of the Coast published their own version of Call of Cthulhu, they had two head writers for the project. One was John Tynes, who you know from a lot of these uh, occult-themed games, and the other one was Monty Cook, who is famous for being one of the big Dungeons and Dragons lead writers, especially on Third Edition. And when they, uh, both of them were asked what was the thing they enjoyed the most about working on a horror book, uh, John Tyne said that he was pleased that he could update 
Cthulhu to modern audiences because he uh, he expressed worry that a lot of people were reducing the horror elements uh, and not you know approaching it as you know they were too busy copying all the lore and not realizing you, this is a toolbox that you would use to invent your own horror and to explore different parts of the human condition like we, as we were talking earlier about Nicolas Cage off the podcast the color out of space and that sort of thing like how does this resonate with modern audiences and then Monty Cook said I'm so glad I could put Cthulhu in D&D stats so you could kill him <laughs> yeah that checks out yeah there you go different philosophies so yeah how did you end up uh, doing art for games like uh, Over the Edge sort of um, stuff in the sort of Times uh, Stolzy tweet orbit I was working uh, uh, gonna be nice. uh, it's been a while and I always want to like uh, uh, yeah I apologize if I've gotten any of the details that was like 25 years ago <laughs> Uh, let's see, 90, 91. Okay, so 30. So, yeah. <laughs> even, a, uh, yeah, it's been a while. Because that's how old that game yes. is. Yeah, and they just came out with a new edition fairly recently. A at the time, I was working for uh, Shadis Magazine, okay. which was the self-proclaimed okay. independent. And Shadis was an up-and-coming magazine that was... InQuest Magazine didn't exist yet. And the internet wouldn't really be invented until 1995 when people had web browsers. You could still get on the internet. It was a big deal. So getting listings of Magic the Gathering cards and their rarity was something that hadn't been done yet. And Shadis had lucked out by basically becoming the Nintendo power of Magic the Gathering. They were listing cards and their rarity and, I guess, expected prices uh, in the magazine, and that was, um, no one else was doing that, because Dragon Magazine wasn't going to do that. That was a rival product. And so uh, they had become popular, and I was working as an artist doing some of the humor cartoons, and uh, I got asked if I would work on uh, an over-the-edge project that was uh, one of the more confusing ones about alternative takes and alternative realities. And so, you know, uh, I did some weird illustrations for that. Uh, I don't have the originals anymore. I sold those on eBay like decades ago. Um, I So I wasn't one of the writers. I was just one of the artists. But it was one of those, uh, you know, I think a lot more influenced by Philip K. Dick, who wrote a lot about wandering into alternate realities, which I guess is related to the themes of Inner Zone and Burroughs and that sort of thing. Uh, I, I do know Over the Edge is one of those weirder games. So, yeah, I don't, you know, have a big... It, it was that simple. Uh, I was willing to work for what they were paying. Fair enough. Right place, right time. You were sort of part, uh, at least close enough to all these circles that you were in some of the playtests. Were these playtests written, uh, run by the original writers in any way? Or was yes. it just kind of like they put it out on Usenet somewhere? And No, this was, this was with the, the original okay. authors. Awesome, wow. So would this be at Gen Con or like in terms of like a longer campaign? Uh, we actually did it over uh, voice uh, calls. Oh, we, wow. were, we were that amateur enough to do it over phones. But some of us were together. Like, I just happened to be in the same place as some of the other authors, you know, at, at the same time. Um, Unknown Armies, I think, w was a convention thing. I okay. think that we were still doing that touring at Gen Con uh, in the 90s. But Delta Green w w was unusual. We were doing voice. There was, um, there was a push in the... Um, I mean, I... 
I do panels on how to self-publish, and like in the 90s, a lot of designers were talking about, you know, in the future, we'll be able to communicate over this information superhighway, and we won't actually have to be in the same place. And, I mean, that came true, so I'm glad about that. But uh, I'm, uh, yeah, I just happened right. to be there uh, at, at, at the time. All right, so sort of... A... And, and also, oh, and also um, not to brag, but I am the winner of the 1994 Call of Cthulhu International Tournament. Ooh. I didn't know they had tournaments for those. What does that entail? Uh, that uh, a, tor- a role-playing game tournament was... No, that... yeah, I know for like D&D and stuff, but like what does a Call of Cthulhu tournament look like? How do you win? It basically consists of not dying until the very end round, and a lot of people voting uh, the scoring system. Uh, this was sponsored by Chaosium, I know it was official. Uh, it was, um, it, you know, there were voting rounds where people would, not only would the judges vote on stuff, but the players would do ballots to vote. And uh, I just got passed to the final round. Uh, where um, I got stomped on by Nyarlathotep, and it was hilarious that they voted me the winner because uh, after I got stomped on, I was shouted, Yes, I am free of the curse of Yig! Because I had gotten cursed earlier, and it was... <laughs> uh, it, it, it was... Uh, it, we, we went full ham on that, which, once again, uh, you know, like, as much as I love occultism, Call of Cthulhu tends to lend itself to very... Speaking of Nicolas Cage... Yeah, the color out of space. I'm, uh, you know, it, it's it does lend itself to full ham. Oh yeah, a lot of the fun of Call of Cthulhu is seeing your character go insane and getting to role play through all the, you know, very uh, overwrought, uh, sort of campy, not very close to reality version of insanity. Well, uh, I mean, that's social the games. Though as the games have gone on, a lot they've often tried to be like, okay, let's be more grounded with this. Let's be more close to reality and try to depict this respectfully. Well, I mean, and also, yes and no, even the original Call of Cthulhu, so Cthulhu, the role-playing game, is the invention of the sanity tank. The idea that you have a sanity number, and as the game goes on, that decreases until it reaches zero and you are removed from play. Uh, That's wholly an invention of the role-playing game. Uh, I mean, I, I will you know contend that if you read even original Cthulhu stories, that doesn't happen to a lot of the characters. The character like Randolph Car- Randolph Carter goes to freaking Kadath and back and casts spells and flies through space, and he's fine. Um, and the other characters who go insane are shown to have bad breeding, and I'm not sure we want to talk about that right now. Because I don't think I need to, re- you know, you know, we don't need to repeat the racism that goes through these things. So the sanity, the sanity tank was added to the game where you go crazy when you see things and your character descends. And it lends itself to very hammy. But I, I do want to give a shout out to the Order of the Golden Dawn, which is a different take on Call of Cthulhu. In this one, you're all yeah. yeah, you're all playing characters from the Golden Dawn Society. You can even have guys like Crowley and Mather show up. And that one was a lot more interesting. I was in a campaign for that for a, a while. And that's one where you're actually trying to gain mystical knowledge. And you do have the problem that using spells or using magic risks your sanity. Because when you cast spells, that re- re- reduces the points. But if you're very aggressive and apply certain techniques in the game, which are totally legit in, in Call of Cthulhu, you could still advance. And that felt more like a, an occult underground, like a mystic knowledge of, we're trying to learn stuff and in the process not go crazy or get killed. 
And since the occult is a real thing in the Golden Dawn universe, yeah. you could get killed or go crazy. So you have to do a certain balancing act, and the game was a lot more forgiving, and thus that game wasn't as hammy. That felt a lot more closer to, to a mystical stuff. And um, I think Order of the Golden Dawn's gone out of print, because I don't hear people talking about it or yeah. seeing print anymore, which is a shame, because it was really good. I used to have a copy. That was good. There was this whole thing, like, uh, I know that one of the writers was credited as Alan Smithy, which is never a good sign for uh, production on that. I have skimmed through it in the past because, like, I've found PDFs online. I I'm mostly familiar with it as sort of a precursor to Delta Green in terms of, like, okay, let's answer the question of how do we keep getting new people into our investigator groups after the old ones die or go insane. Yes, there was, um, uh, the, um, many of the people went on to go write Delta Green work for a yep. magazine yep. called The Unspeakable Oath. Have you talked about that oh, before? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, excellent. So, so, uh, Unspeakable Oath had the Cthulhu 5.5, which was a bunch of house rules to use, and one of them was, which was a uh, very good idea, what I want to call the troop method. You, you see this also in games like Ars Magica, or in Dungeons & Dragons, they had Dark Sun, which was a very brutal version of D&D. It wasn't as forgiving with resurrection and healing. So they suggested that you should make multiple characters. And then they had a framework where your you would play your main character who would go on adventures and get risks, and other characters who weren't on the adventure were doing other things. And that's a precursor to what you'll see in the modern... Um, very modern approach of stuff like Blades in the Dark, which have the idea of downtime or structured downtime. Yeah. It, it's a great theory because it works very well for, well, first of all, a mystical game where you wouldn't be sending everyone out on you know every horror adventure or whatever. Some people are going to go home and read the book. And it, it makes it feel more like an organization. And I think that uh, did have a big influence on Delta Green, which is also supposed to be like a Rainbow Six style organization where it, it's not just four random people going on an expedition. It's a, a bunch of people devoted to research, investigation, field work, and possibly wet work. Yeah, like um, they lean into that even more heavily in the newer edition where, you know, there's straight up a downtime system. There's rules to handle things like um, official requisition of materials. Yeah, like all, all that Delta Green has always emphasized that stuff. Well, not not in the original playtest I was in. I, 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 okay, uh, I, do you have any stories you'd like to tell here? So, have you read Delta Green Countdown? Oh yeah, of course. Yes, that's how that's how I got into it. So, Delta Green Countdown, the original printing, opens with a story of a bunch of people going into a cult house and blowing everyone away. Yeah, is this the Pisces? Is this the Pisces fiction where, it, like, at the foot of Parliament, where you guys are, uh... I think so, yeah. It, it's a little vignette about a bunch of guys bashing in the front door and shooting everyone inside. Oh my god, that was you? That was... That was our adventuring group, yes. Uh, uh, <laughs> That's amazing. That, that was a playtest with the original authors. I've always wondered who it was. Oh my god. Well, yeah, because I knew Glancy ran those games, um... That was Glancy, I believe, right? Uh, I believe so, yeah. Yeah, that's, and I, I, I remember hearing that he ran those games online in some way. Yeah. Or, like, at a distance because, like, I, he had transcriptions up yeah. somewhere on their website. Yeah. And so, um, yeah. And so, um, 
Uh, and also, there's a lot of early issues of the Unspeakable Oath, which also have a lot of narratives of, based on their games. And, and so a lot of the original Delta Green crew was you pick up a gun and go shoot a bunch of people and then come home and talk about it. And, uh, um, I mean, I realize, I hate saying that, I know a lot of folks would say, um, that's not your experience. Like, I'm sure, hey, you guys, you get the game, it's in your pocket, you do a lot of that. But the original people I was playing with, you could solve any problem just by grabbing a gun and going, go shoot it. Which, I mean, I, I might be in a minority opinion on this, but also um, that, that's a huge problem with a lot of the occult approaches in gaming, especially Call of Cthulhu, which at its core is still RuneQuest. I don't know if you've played RuneQuest. I've read through it, never played it. Though. Right, I mean, because the Call of Cthulhu game is based off of RuneQuest, and a lot of this is go first and shoot everything. And that's, in, in fact, a big criticism that I had of the game at the time. I mean, you'll notice that I'm not really involved in Delta Green. So I, I'm glad to hear that, that more... Uh, I've been hearing more reports from folks that it's more matured. I haven't played it since the first incarnation, but that's what it originally was. And I, I expressed my issues that we just go in and shoot everybody. It's like, like this is it? That, no, that's interesting because that is one of the criticisms that people have now. Uh, one of our yeah, friends yep, show, Melon, still... came in. <laughs> he <laughs> talked about that, and it's like just roll firearms for any problem. It gets a bit boring after a while, especially when one of the key conceits of the Delta Green setting is that, like, yeah, you can have as many firearms as you want. It's not going to help too. you. Right. I mean, I mean, yeah. the, the, they'll, they'll, there's a lot of text in there on how grueling it is and how torturous it is and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But ghouls go down to bullets. Uh, you know, like all the all the mundane cultists go down just fine to bullets, and the game isn't very robust. It doesn't have like proof against minimaxing. There, there's something crazy where you're in a group and everyone's dexterity is 16 or higher. Every single one <laughs> in that playtest group had a dexterity of 16 or higher, and you uh, they were all going first and they were all shooting first, all shooting three times around. It um. It, uh, I know they've put some more provisions in for that, but th that's a big problem. I, I, I thought later on World of Darkness comes out. Uh, we, uh, in 2003, there's a revision top-down from White Wolf's uh, Vampire slash Werewolf slash Mage where they make a generic version of it called World of Darkness, and then you use Vampire Werewolf as add-ons. But they also made a Investigate Occult add-on separate from World of Darkness. And that game doesn't have a sanity mechanic, and your characters have broader skills, and it's harder to minimax because it's a more robust game, and you built more normal people. It was easier to build one, and it had a morality rule in it, which meant that you would be punished if you just killed everyone you met. Whereas a sanity game is the opposite. Murder is usually just fine. Uh, it, uh, in fact, after a while, you become immune to murder. So um, that was one of my criticisms uh, of Delta Green at the time, that it was basically, you know, this isn't as thoughtful as Rainbow Six. And then Rainbow Six turned into a shooter that you play today, so... So, uh, as much as I love military-style organization and, and military-style games, um, yeah, Delta Green always struck me that, that um, I mean, uh, I apologize to everybody for your game, I, I was not a fan of it. 
Okay, interesting, interesting. Um, well, no, yeah, we just wanted respect to the playtest because, you know, um, these are criticisms that a lot of the fan base even has now. Even now that the system has, like, tried to shift away from some of that stuff with mixed results because, you know, yeah, there's downtime stuff to cover your time with family and all the stuff in between missions, but, you know, that's, that's 20 minutes of a four-hour game. Yeah, and it's good mm. that they've added that. There's, uh, I think they might have had some pushback from The Laundry, which is another version of Call of Cthulhu that yeah. we belong to an organization to investigate. The Laundry has a much more cynical or silly tongue-in-cheek tone yeah, to it. Yeah, very British comedy sort of feel. Right, but um, th there's, uh, there's a problem where, it, which I like to call a hammer theory, which is, you know, when, if you have hammers, everything looks like nails. There is the huge problem that, that no one really wants to talk about in Call of Cthulhu, that you can solve every problem by shooting it. And there are people here who tell me, you know, the people who say, no, you can't, what about all those rules? I go, no, you can. That Delta Green playtest I was in, everyone there was optimized to plow right through it, and then they did. No casualties. You just bur burst into a building, shot everyone inside. Monsters that cause sanity loss, if you want to shoot them as quickly as possible and mow them down. I mean, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to see that that's gotten some criticism. There's a lot of good material in Delta Green, and there's a lot of you know, research that goes into it. There's some very inventive ideas. It's great source material. But there's that looming thing in the background that um, you can just minimax and plow your way through it. And that was like that's also an issue I had with the playtest. It was clear from the very playtest that even the people who were writing this game I mean, I have to take away from that. If that's how they were playing it and that's how they wrote it, that was intended behavior. Hmm. Interesting. This is confirming a lot of things <laughs> that we've thought for a while. You could say, you could make the argument that it goes to the argument that um, horror is an essentially conservative uh, genre uh, where it is like, oh no, there's a horror, kill it. I think it's it, it's possible to do horror. I think. Uh, um, oh sure. I, I mean, the the big thing uh, that uh, you can try to threaten to kill our heroes. That's why it's a good idea to have a game that rotates that. Uh, with some of the more recent stuff, such as the Apocalypse World stuff, and I mean, I guess I need to you know my bias. We recently published Abyss, which is a horror game. But the perspective of that is something horrible is going to happen, and you need to stop it. And then, like a modern game, we have uh, a countdown that certain events happen, it ticks down a countdown, and when that's exhausted, the horrible thing happens. You have to race against it. Instead of threatening to kill our heroes or drive them insane, we're threatening to do horrible stuff to innocent people that you have to stop before that happens. And that, to mm. me, has always been a better approach. That was one of my criticisms of Delta Green, because you can, you can threaten to kill the heroes... But you can only kill them once. After the, you know, after that, they either write up a new character or, or it's worn off. We really should be focusing on trying to prevent horror to other people, and um, and really also the other solution I had was we shouldn't be able to solve the problem merely by shooting it. And this, but this gets into a much bigger. I didn't know if you wanted to talk about game design. This is a very fascinating conversation. So by all means, uh, it, it's um. I mean, it's something that, that we wrestled with, which was, you know, play, players are going to maximize their characters. Um, I've never been... Uh, in the 80s and 90s, there was a huge problem where the designers were writing stuff 
that they would yell at their players for. Like the vampire writers were mocking people for making vampire mage hybrids, even as they themselves wrote up rules to play a vampire mage hybrid. So they wrote up rules and mocked you for it. Dungeons and Dragons had Unearthed Arcana, which had rules for playing evil characters that if you were evil, you got bonuses to stuff. Um, lots of games like Champions or GURPS would be filled with rules and then they would make fun of Munchkins. Steve Jackson later became famous for Munchkin, <laughs> where they were mocking you for building super powerful characters. And, and to a smaller extent, Delta Green had this thing of it's supposed to be a horror scary game. By the way, don't write up a character with deck 16, pistols 90, and dodge 90. J just don't do that. It's more fun if you die, I guess. And I'm glad to see that we're having a modern, like some people are questioning that as a design theory. It's kind of like, I mean, if that's the way the designers are playing it, if, if Ed Greenwood is writing his Elminster character into the story, or R.I. Salvatore is writing Drizzt into the story, and these characters break rules that players who play the game should be playing the same, you know, they should be allowed to play the same kinds of characters. Man, I could go on and on about that kind of stuff. You, that's largely been disappearing with the rise of streamed games, and Critical Role in the 20, in 2016, we're really seeing a pushback where players want to be really cool and expressive and have agency in the stories, and they're actually doing it. And I, I think that's a, a, a really good move. That's why I would be excited to check out some of these new additions if these designers are learning from those lessons. And instead of building power gamer characters and then making fun of people for being power gamers, if they finally realize, no, no, these people are playing the game and they're having fun and expressing themselves, we should be responding to that challenge. Yeah, not only that, like, these are incentives that they themselves created. And then they're criticizing people for following through on those incentives. Yeah, because, it, like, Delta Green... It's, it's very weird. You're going to be a military police person who's funded, you know, I know you have the full funding of the government, but this is different, like, the protagonists in these original horror stories it's why I brought up World of Darkness are normal people, you know, like mundane people like maybe you're a police officer or a veteran but you probably have a job and you're probably, you, you have skills that a, a broad base that a typical person is then pulled out of your comfort zone and put in a horror situation whereas in a game like Delta Green you have the obstacle of these are special military grade police they're trained to handle combat and war zones. Some of them might even be like Navy SEALs or that sort of thing. Taking a gun into a hostile area and then taking other people's lives, you know, that, that can be its own thing. But, like, they're not, they're not scary. It's the Silent Hill homecoming problem where everyone, you know, complained that Shepard shows up and, you know, he can roll and stab and shoot guns accurately. It's not as scary when you're a special ops guy. And... and when Delta Green is focusing on saving other people, it's a lot better. When it's me being a military policeman barging in the front door and executing a bunch of mundane people who aren't even as skilled as I am, it's not... It doesn't feel like a horror game. It feels a lot more like a tutorial level in, in Call of Duty. I remember I when for the like Delta Green Discord group, I wrote up a um, little template for like playing a social worker in Delta Green and it got pushed back because like it didn't have things like the combat things because I'm like no a social worker wouldn't have yeah, that's and what I was arguing from the point of view of like that, considering in setting like it makes sense that a social worker would if anyone's gonna like encounter unnatural things someone who's dealing with people 
uh, on the fringes of society, people who are desperate, people who are having problems, like they could easily encounter the unnatural stuff as much as a cop or a soldier. Um, but how to play the game when you've got human and law and like accounting, but you don't have a gun because you're a social worker. It's hard. And one of the things I think it's the setting problem. It's not a problem per se, but it's one of the setting conceits is that knowledge corrupts, which encourages a sort of just big dumb response with guns blazing. Because are you going to study that book? Ooh, you'll be in trouble if you do. Yeah, but you're not going to get in trouble for just shooting everything. I mean, that's the always doors, the safest. Burn the books. That sort of shit. Right. It's the it's that great lesson from the Hell first Hellboy movie where Hellboy says, skip to the end, how do we kill it? Because, you know, he's an action movie star and that's all he cares about. And, and you're right. That's one of the problems that you run into uh, in the, the Cthulhu. It's not even like that Buffy the Slayer type nuance where we're underpowered and we have to figure out what the mystic thing is that kills it. That's not true in Call, in Call of Cthulhu. Mundane things kill these guys just fine unless they can't be killed, in which case they can't be killed. I mean, you know, you can't kill Cthulhu or Azatoth in any way that matters. So then killing them is irrelevant and you're not even interested in that. And that paradoxically makes the game less horrifying. I can kill things I can kill and things I can't kill I just don't engage and we're done. I, I think there were innocent people at some point, I forget. Yeah, somewhere in all that mess. This is the problem with running a cosmic horror game where everyone knows the setting. And everyone knows yeah. what Cthulhu's stats are, and everyone is familiar with all the horrors because they're like, "Yeah, this is this." Like you're running something, and you put in some clues, and then the players are like, "Oh, this is definitely Zathagor. I recognize this." It's like, "Oh, okay." This goes back to what Times was talking about in Cthulhu D20, though, where th it's not the lore. Like, okay, it's fun, but the the important part is the toolbox. Stuff that you can kind of take from and then modify for your own purpose, mm. ideally making it different enough that players are no longer able to recognize it super well despite knowing the lore and having read, you know, having their big old compendium of everything Lovecraft, Lovecraft ever wrote on their bookshelf somewhere. It, it's also, there, there's kind of a paradox here because the idea of a cultist underground it, a lot of what folks have been talking about is, is they've, they've taken Lovecraft's racism into question. The Call of Cthulhu story itself, which has the introduction of the cult, uh, it's not clear when Legrasse shows up to arrest everyone, are they mistaken? Like, they're all worshipping Cthulhu, but not for any sort of benefit, and they're all basically described as, like, hillbillies or people of low status, and once again, there's racist elements to the description. That implies that these are just sort of, you know, in, inbred evil people, which, if you're following the Dungeons and Dragons discourse, people started to come you know, asking questions of, why are orcs always evil? What makes them, you know, they're just described as inherently evil. What does that mean? Is that racially coded? And and so you ran into this problem where, uh, in the original stories, it's implied that they're somehow subhuman. That deep ones or people having sex with fifth people uh there there's something weird going on there and i know the delta green books expanded it a little bit by using the a lot of occult elements that were incorporated into nazism um schickler group hitler became uh was a member of the ultima thule society which was an occult society that was one of the many hollow earth societies 
Uh, some of the myths and elements and symbols, such as the swastikas, hollow earth, ice planet theory, um, you know, sort of circulate around in the Nazi circles and that sort of thing. And so that ties stronger into the Hellboy movies, if you've seen that. And there's some really good development material in the Delta Green of the idea of what if there's an occult Nazi conspiracy going on where there's people who are using resuscitated casualties and that sort of thing. And that gives you, like, bad guys in cells to fight. But now we're getting... Delta Green certainly turns into an intelligence organization where you're fighting a conspiracy and cultist, which that was the 90s. The X-Files was big. That, that's a natural growth to the idea of a secret conspiracy. I, I would not have a problem with rooting out a conspiracy to commit occult horror. Like, if, these, if there's a bunch of bad people out there who want to sacrifice blood and other innocence to dark powers for personal gain that makes you a hero and the idea that you would be some sort of counter-terrorist ring trying to root them out sounds really good and I was all behind that that's why I kind of lost favor with Delta Green when the adventures themselves we pretty much were pointed at the cultists and once we knew where they were like everyone was excited even the designers were excited to just go there and shoot everyone and that solves all the problem and that comes off as an extremely different tone here in 2022 it's interesting to me how with the new delta green like they've pretty much like majestic 12 that whole 1990s government conspiracy is gone it's become the program so delta green pretty much is majestic 12 and that's like a subtext but it's mostly more of a fan subtext that it, it's basically the delta green has become what they were fighting against um and this is why i wrote and ran a um one shot a couple like maybe last year which was about a bunch of QAnon people finding a green box and just misinterpreting everything and assuming that like well here's proof of the evil conspiracy it's right here all these delta green documents and that was kind and of I, fun i think uh i mean yeah there is the question of whether the game is supposed to be fun or if it's supposed to be investigative because uh, that's something we wrestle with as designers because people have a hard week you know uh, everything's on fire i know how it is you get together you want to get together weekend you want to go ahead and have fun and if, if ha your idea of having fun is shooting make-believe people Fortnite is very successful, so I can't really blame people for wanting to do that. It's not, I think we're all in agreement here, it's not very horror. And it doesn't necessarily feel very occult. I mean, sure, there's some books, but like you said, no, none of you are reading any of this stuff. You all know spells are just going to kill yeah. you. They don't give you any tangible benefit. Um, I mean, that's why, I mean, I am biased a little bit. We released the Abyss game, which was our own take on horror hunting. And in that game, the more you use occult powers the more you're at risk of being temporarily removed from the game. That was uh, what our hang-up was, and there's a timer going on. So if your character goes nuts and unleashes a whole bunch of power in an area or, or you know, like succumbs to their own occult influence, they might have to go into timeout and get recovered during downtime. They might disappear from play for a couple hours if you've you know if you've gone too far and then the timer runs out when they go after recover you and a bunch of people horribly suffer and that was our take because I, I think that sort of approach can work better if you guys do know the lore you have to have some sort of known unknowns to know what's what's at stake that something terrible is going to happen yeah. but also if you, you there have to be some sort of risks to take to sort of solve it 
I know a game like Gumshoe, which has its own version, like, I think there's both a Cthulhu and an Ezoterrorist of it, kind of wants... Oh, they have Delta Green for it. Yeah, okay. yeah, they want to do that, but the Gumshoe system's kind of got its own problems uh, of trying to deal with that. And, uh, I mean, I personally think that that's kind of a richer experience. I, I, I mean, I, I guess I would say, like, you know, occult stuff should be mysterious. You should have to know stuff to get into it. I think the idea of merely knowing it mm. drives you insane. The whole notion of there are elder gods that could destroy us at any time sounds quaint after we have lived through 50 years of nuclear or 50 years plus of nuclear paranoia and zombie fiction you know the idea that everything could be destroyed any day now is not an alien concept as it was in the 20s and 30s so i'd like to get back to all that in a bit but um going sort of back to the occult underground talking about earlier editions you did also say that you had uh been in some play tests for early versions of Unknown Armies, and I was curious in hearing how those went. See, see, I feel bad. Because I, I'm <laughs> about to say something that's going to undermine everything and make everyone Ooh. shut off your podcast in disgust. Are you ready? Oh, we love those sorts of takes. Go ahead. Go for it. I don't care for Sandman. Okay. Uh, Unknown Armies very much wanted to tap into that Sandman, Thessaly, Books of Magic... The 1990s, uh, uh, John Constantine, the, the Vertigo zeitgeist. Yeah, yeah. Of, uh, we're kind of underground people who are casting a, a lot of spells and, and, and dealing with crimes and a very rules-light system. But it also was a very lore-light system. I mean, to the credit to Neil Gaiman's Good Omens, which I enjoyed more, is the is mm. the, uh Making a role-playing game system and then removing all the lore from it is never a big draw to me. Like, I was drawn to Golden Dawn because Golden Dawn had that sort of authenticity to it of if I wanted to know more about these characters, I could look it up. It might not be true, it might not, but I, I know what 1890, you know, Britain, I could do research on that. And that would add to some of my details to it. And sure, they could change some of it, but I could know it. When you have a system like Unknown Armies that kind of says, well, just make up everything as you go along, then you're kind of at the mercy of a bunch of other people who aren't professional authors, who will, by definition, not be as good at writing as Neil Gaiman or Grant Morrison or Alan Moore or H.P. Lovecraft. They're, they're not going to be as good at that. And so your game is, is going to possibly skew a little more towards the silly side. And if you're going to introduce elements like, I forget if it's aromancy or pornomancy. It's pornomancy, isn't it? Pornomancy, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah Which annoys me because that's a Latin root combined with a Greek root. I shake my oh, yeah. Fist and oh, yeah. That happens that, that, all the time. Okay, like, it's there we go. in the game. Yeah. Yeah, they, they talk about that. They, they say it doesn't matter because the occult underground doesn't care about yeah. I mean, the well, linguistic right. origins. And and that kind of attitude of where, like, uh, you know. How, how do you feel about televisions? Television? Well, Philo would have named it something else. <laughs> so, um, I mean, uh, that's a petty dispute, but, but Unknown Army has kind of had a tone to it where it's going to be very uh, rules-light and very off-the-cuff. And as, as, much as, I, as much as I might enjoy that sort of like liberating spirit, I still personally found it was too unstructured. I mean, I would compare that to, say, a game, you know, some of the more Powered by the Apocalypse games that you might see today, or even Over the Edge, which is a lot like Powered by the Apocalypse, 
which is they kind of dial it down and talk about the kind of storytelling elements they wanted. The kind of impression I got from Unknown Armies was that if it's going to be an occult game, I think we should, like I said, we're not doing Gardnerian or Star Sapphire or Freemason or Kabbalah or any sort of rituals. We're just making everything up and then we're rolling funny shaped dice to do things and nothing... It's that opposite problem, I would say. Like, like I know some people might... You just said that Call of Cthulhu might be too well-known to be scary. But to me, it's the opposite. Because it's grounded in certain things and limited to certain things, I can relate better. So the major issue I have with Unknown Armies is basically I was no fun. It was like I couldn't get immersed in the world. The original system is extremely rules-light of, of rolling deep percents for everything and making up a lot as you go along. And that sort of lack of lack of structure and lack of grounding. Like, there wasn't enough Unknown Armies to convince me I'm living in a normal world. A lot of these games, like the World of Darkness games, have this problem. Is that it's so mired in putting you in the occult world and you're hanging out with occult weirdos and talking about occult stuff that you're never spending any time in the mundane world. And it's not weird unless you compare it to something normal. And that was my major issue well, that and the rules lightness. But that was my other major issue, is that passing among normals and trying to be subtle and that sort of thing... That's fair. It's interesting it being a bit too uh, off-the-wall and um, disjointed criticism, because and, like, not enough lore, because, honestly, the newer edition, they've doubled down on that. They have, but a lot of it also is... I mean, I, that's why I feel mean about saying it. Like, I haven't followed it much past first edition. I know that... I mean, when you make a second edition, you got to put more stuff in it. No, third edition. They like there's a whole story game mini game. Yeah, now, right. Where like players come together to basically make stuff up themselves. Right. They like the game world is player generated. Right. And 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 there's a lot of that kind of stuff. I mean, uh, the first edition was pretty loose, and I'm sure the third edition, people like this sort of thing. Will like it. The, find it the sort of thing they like. If people are enjoying that sort of thing, uh, you know, more more power to them. I, I think the the major issue I kind of had with it was it was it wants to be very much that kind of vertigo, exciting. We're a bunch of weirdos, and without stuff to ground it. When you ask me about occultism, a lot of the studies of the neo pagans and the occult stuff is we're trying to make sense of our world. We're trying to study magic and interact with other beings to either calm the anxieties that are within ourselves. Or to better understand, I mean, VVV, I, through the power of truth, uh, conquer the universe. Uh, knowledge is power, power is understanding, that sort of thing. And if you're, I mean, I know it's, but it's a game, you play it to have fun. If you just want to go around doing weird stuff to people, you know, that can be a lot more fun. That, that's why, um, you know, like I said, I, I, would, I much more preferred the more down-to-earth stuff where we were grounded in interacting with normal people using our occult in strange and restricted ways that you would see in like Golden Dawn where you had to both deal with your mundane life and mundane problems as well as supernatural elements at the same time and they could get mixed and matched but it, it they, they had structure and and so th once again I know Unknown Armies is on third edition I'm sure there's more to it by now uh, I, I'm sure it's a, it's a lot more structured than it was before. Like, go back and read Vampire First Edition sometime. It, it's a rough read. Uh, they've got a lot more material in these 25th anniversary uh, versions. Yeah, it usually takes games a while to sort of figure out, like, how do we explain to people how you actually run this?
usually sort of the kernel of the game idea and then the core book come out before that sort of philosophy of play is really developed. And a lot of that philosophy of play ends up being kind of ad hoc as a result. Yeah, uh, what, what's sticking and what isn't? What do people care yeah. about and what yeah. they don't? Uh, I, you would you would have much better position to talk about an army than I would. I mean, that was basically my takeaway was this isn't Hellboy, this isn't Golden Dawn, it isn't any of those. This isn't for me. Okay, yeah. I know where you're coming from. Although, like, looking at my own campaigns and on her armies, I'm just like, wow, I resemble this remark because every, every side. Yeah, same. Absolutely the same. And yeah, like, I, I think it's you like it or you don't in that regard. Like, if that's the sort of shit you're into, then Unknown Armies is very much something for you. And But if you want that sort of grounding in, you know, the everyday, you know, also to certainly grounding in a more coherent system of magic, then, uh, not so much. It's very much a, a interlocking layers of incoherent systems of magic that only yeah. work because people are obsessed with them or doing a certain thing. Uh, but it works. I enjoy it. Um, I enjoy sort of sort of coming up with things on the fly. Every like with the the mini game where you do the the sort of world and generation and character relationships generation. Every single time I'm like presented with this corkboard of just confusing nonsense and i have to make sense of it and i do enjoy that process even though it is like mental labor um but i do enjoy it we're seeing a lot more rise of of interactive storytelling it used to be that you had a monolithic game master who was in charge of making the universe up and with stories and that sort and then the players just kind of showed up with whatever characters they wrote up in some sort of vacuum and the mm. players expected to be entertained, and they might build horrible problem children who had to be entertained. And now you're seeing a rise with the third edition of Unknown Armies and later games of, well, maybe we should have the session zero where we discuss how we know each other, why we hang out with each other, and what our goals are to make out of the story. And that's a lot more mature way of looking at it. Um, I will say that's not unique to Unknown Armies. People are doing that with almost every role-playing game that's coming out. And I I do think it's a healthy development. I think uh, that goes a lot longer. I mean, it goes a lot further to making it less work for the host and making the players feel like they have more motivation and agency. So, yeah, and also, it's your game. If you're having, uh, you could, Unknown Armies, I think, could be a lot of fun for the sort of people who enjoy that. No, it can, it, it's less work. I don't know if it's less work, it's different work because people will yeah, put things up on the cockboard. Yeah. yeah, sure. Because I'll be like, make sense of this weird thing. I'm going to put these meth alligators on the cockboard and try to make them make sense within the humanocentric magical universe. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'll figure it out. It's, um, I would like to build on what you're saying with it. It's not necessarily like when you say it's the same amount of work, but it's the right kind of work. There's a lot of sure. running jokes in tabletop role-playing games of, yeah. I can't keep my players on message, or they won't get to the next plot point, or I made up all this material and I didn't use it. By focusing your efforts on stuff that people actually want to do and engage with, you're not investing a lot of effort in stuff they don't care about. Sure. Both of the newer editions of Delta Green and Unknown Armies kind of have... A foot in old school kind of trad gaming sensibilities and a foot in story gaming sensibilities. And Unknown Armies 3rd Edition especially is like that. And I tend to like games like that 
the most because I like games that play. Overall, like trad games where that's sort of the lens to which players are viewing the world and interacting with it. I, I, I have a question for you because I have to clarify something. What is a trad game? Trad game is something like Call of Cthulhu, D&D, that paradigm that you expressed before where it's a game designed in such a way that the GM is sort of the arbiter of the world. The vast majority of the creativity is of their creation. And really the main thing that players do is they come in with their characters that have been built within that system and interact with that world over the course of a session without really sort of directing the overall trajectory of the narrative. Right. And I, and I was suggesting that uh, a problem with that sort of thing was that, first of all, the players can just do whatever the hell they want. I mean, that was the weird thing to me, the Delta Green, because I would have thought, wow, I would have thought that if a random person was running Delta Green, that a random game master out there would be confused when a bunch of players just showed up and shot everything and killed everyone. And, and that was one of my issues with it, because it's like, you think they wanted something more subtle than just bashing in the front door and killing everyone. But oh, the fact... Oh, you haven't read the fiction. The fact that <laughs> he, right, and the fact that the designers were so enthusiastic after it, that was making me question, well, why are we playing you know, Call of Cthulhu to do that, which is, doesn't have a very good combat system. Everyone here has gamed the system. In a, in a traditional game, you were supposed to randomly generate your character, and you might wind up with subprime stats. No one at the table had subprime stats. I mean, that's why I'm emphasized everyone had 98th percentile stats, which we should go play the lottery, because you guys are the luckiest people in the world if you somehow legitimately did this. <laughs> I'm not accusing anyone of cheating, there's no rule against rolling up 87 characters until you get the one you like. And that, that to me was the mixed message was you won't find in the text of Delta Green where it specifically says any character with a dex less than 16 and a pistol skill less than 80 is non-viable, throw it away. Like the problem you were just discussing. They don't say that in the text and you have to kind of suss that out by playing it. And that to me was a major failing of a lot of these traditional games. Yeah. The way people actually played them was different than anything you would find in the actual text. And now that we live in the era of streaming games, I mean, first we had, in the 2000s, we had Usenet, and people could look on the internet to see how they were playing it. Now when people are streaming it, and you can see how they're playing it, now people are literally questioning, it's like, if this is the way you're actually doing it, we should write the rules this way and actually have it happen that way. And uh, I'm excited to see that games like Delta Green and Unknown Armies are embracing the modern sensibilities. But, yeah, I, I think uh, like, like that's been my major issue with that kind of thing of, like, we, we, if that's the way we're supposed to do it, we need to tell everybody that. And if I go around telling everyone, oh, no, Delta Green's a game where you just shoot a bunch of cultists, people would co correct me on it. But I'm, that's why... I, I mean, I'm glad to hear that I'm not alone who, who has been accusing the game of being that. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, you, you even see, I think, with stuff like World of Darkness, sort of um, gestures towards people wanting that sort of game, but not really having the design language to articulate it at the time. I, I don't want to characterize it as, like, modern versus old, because I think it's just a difference in preference. And I fundamentally like games that have a bit of both, because I think these trad games tend to have... I mean, if you look at the controversy, I already said, yeah, trad games, you know, liars. <laughs> <laughs> 
but because like you can find you know I've already pointed out Elminster the Sage, Drizzt, um, you know the Elf, Robolar, who's one of my favorite characters to research. All of these guys had impossibly great builds. And uh, all of them did a whole bunch of stuff that, if you read any GMing advice, will tell you, like Gary Gygax going on and on about, don't be a Montreal, don't, James Ward gives away too much treasure, don't give away as much treasure as James Ward did, never mind that Robolar was in my game. Um, you know, like, they'll tell you, don't do any of this. Uh, and... Uh, it's annoying because it, it, it's like that's that that's why I became a game designer actually, and why I'm glad to see games have changed from that. Because yeah, these guys were just like lying to you about what they were doing. Yeah, and, they, and, and now now people are, are seeing the builds and seeing no no this is what everyone actually is doing. This isn't academic anymore. Yeah, they were like seeing how people were like reacting to the incentives of their game system during playtest. And rather than being like, okay, I kind of, I think I need to change the system and playtest this further, they're just like, all right, in the DM's book or whatever, don't let players interact with the game in this way. Well, here, here's the most shocking thing. So when you guys are running Delta Green, when someone shoots someone else's, else dead, you make them make a sanity check, right? Um, in the new system, there's something called adaptation, which is you can. There's different kinds of sanity loss. Kind of right. Like you in, in the newer versions of the game, you can say, "Oh, I've seen too many go." Right. But yeah, but, exactly. So unless listen, they've become adapted to violence, yes. Of right. But 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 listen to what you're saying. So yes. in other words, I would experience more sand loss by realizing that monsters are real than I would experience by ending a human life. Yep. Yep. And, and, and that's, like, a, a extremely mixed message right there. <laughs> I'm, we're not disagreeing with... Well, at least I'm not disagreeing with yeah, anything. Yeah, okay, okay. You're saying about Devil Green, just kind of like a... Yeah, I still kind of like the game, though. But, like, yeah, I've no, realized, I mean, yeah, yeah there's guys, a lot of horrible implications to it on a social level and a personal level. Yeah, I mean, if, if folks are playing it and enjoying it, that's, that, that's why I was saying, like... Yeah. yeah, my manifestation has been we just need to be honest about this. Don't like yeah. because yeah. Other, because a lot of a lot of the toxicity in in the role playing game circles were when people read a book, built a character, and showed up at the game, and then were told at the table that's not the way we actually play the game. And I think we live in a modern era where we need to you know own up to it. If this is what people are actually doing, that's what they're doing. And or even uh, worse, when the game when the GM thinks, oh yeah, the game allows for this, the book says so. And then they actually bring those sorts of characters to the table and they just get chewed up and spit out. Well, it, it's like you could, if you game Delta Green with a random game master, they might give you flack for, like I said, showing up and shooting everyone when the actual designers are giving game yeah, examples of players supposed to do it. Yeah, so, well, that's what the game itself incentivizes. Okay, I mean, yeah, we, like I said, we already agreed on this. Delta Green's a yeah, game yeah, about yeah, just yeah. shooting, you know, <laughs> shooting lots of people, but yes. you won't see that in the press releases. Whereas Unknown Armies, I think, is very much upfront and honest about what it is. So that's why, like, I, Unknown Armies really wasn't for me, but I'm a lot more charitable to it because I don't think anyone who plays Unknown Armies is going to be confused about what it is. Yeah, and um, why I like sort of those sort of mixed trad game story game things is like I think trad games tend to have more fleshed out sort of ways of interacting with the world on a moment to moment gameplay level. But I like the story game elements because I like that sort of overall structure and trajectory to things where it's like, okay, this is the sort of 
character story this game is designed. Did, did, did we want to get into theory a little bit? I was actually very interested. Well, uh, Tormson, do you want to say anything? That's been a bit. Oh, I was just thinking before. Um, it's interesting this about how you're saying now about like streaming brings it front and center and how people are actually playing the game. And it sort of makes sense how like back in the day you had like this sort of Galapagos Island situation where there was just everyone had their own homebrewed versions of the game. They were all isolated and separate from each other. Um, and now, and I'm just, and it, it reminds me of like, like early Christendom where like a single priest would go out and convert the pagans <laughs> and then like have their own interpretation. And then eventually the Catholic church had to come in and be like, not that. No, we didn't, we don't teach that theology. Um, and I wonder if a similar thing is sort of happening. It could be happening with this, all this. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I, I, speaking as someone from the trenches, from my perspective, I would say, I, I mean, I have to disagree. The opposite is actually true. Gaming used to be a lot more monolithic. Uh, in in mm, fact, just... we're seeing a rise of that because it used to be, what did you, what do you play? Dungeons and Dragons. Done. I mean, that was the only game. Maybe or or, or you're true. playing Traveler. You know, and, and and for the most part, Dungeons and Dragons dominated the conversation. And a lot of people played Dungeons and Dragons. There's a lot. I mean, I, we can talk about the kind of different styles, but Dungeons and Dragons had very common elements to it. If you go back and read the Dragon Magazine, which I guess is our only guidance to people writing about this, yes, there were some killer DMs and there were some very generous DMs, but the fact that these kept popping up over and over again, like there's a lot of um, stuff that makes fun of game masters being too generous with treasure. Monty Hall was a jargon term for that because he used to be a game show host. And people would talk about that repeatedly as a thing. Uh, power gamers of people who had impossibly powerful characters with really good roles. These are things that showed up over and over again. So while the groups might have been a little tweaked, these were common problems that showed up a lot. Mm. And it, it's not until you get to Vampire in the 90s which is hugely, like, for a while, Vampire was the number one tabletop role-playing game. That's hard to think of in this modern era. And you, it was a totally different paradigm shift, is you play yourself, but better. You're an immortal vampire in whatever city you want to live in. I mean, sure, sure you could build something different, but D&D was, oh, sorry, but Vampire was pretty much geared towards that. And people playing themselves and LARPing. It was much more LARP-friendly, because you could just wear all black. Whereas with D&D, you might have to get a boffer or something, who knows. And there was an explosion of games, and then now we're back in the 2000s where a lot of the talk is still dominated by Dungeons & Dragons. They're very aggressive uh, about uh, limiting the conversation. But now we have a lot more talk today about what if we had a session zero? What if we established our boundaries? What kind of characters do you want to play? D&D has an identity crisis where the basic book says you will play one class, but everyone out there is playing hybrids for crying out loud. Like... Everyone, the critical role people are doing it. Uh, it it's so, uh, you're seeing a lot more explosion and different ideas of different things to do with these games. And, and I would say that, you know, like, like that's a lot wider. I'm sure there were pockets of it, like you described, but, you know, it, it's, a lot, it's a lot different. It was considered, like, I think it was depreciated at the time because people, a lot of people would have the homebrew, but people were like, ah, oh, it's homebrew, it's, that's, that's some bullshit there. Um, but now it's more like, no, everyone, it's, it's how people are actually playing the game. Been noticing that because of the rise of streaming in the last few years, 
a lot of people have like very mentally narrowed down what they expect a role-playing game to be. Like, like maybe it was bigger. Like the two thousand nineties and the two thousands, I think, saw a big storytelling rise. I mean, you know, and and these games that invoke stuff. But yeah, in the last few years, I've also seen extremely narrow definitions that people assume you will play a character, you will go in a box, you will stab things. It'll be just like those streamed games that we've seen. People, like, unspoken assumptions, that's what the game is. See where you're coming from, that it maybe it felt more expressive in the days when we had more generic games, when Vampire was more powerful as a force. Um, I guess someone there actually plays Fate. I mean, Fate's a game, right? People actually play that? I have in the past, yes. Yeah, I mean, people talk about it, so I have to yeah. assume people are out there playing it. There's still, I think things are still monolithic. They were then, they are now, just sort of in different ways. Back in the day, it was just kind of based on who's writing the books and what are their opinions, right? Like, you bring up the Monty Hall campaigns. That's a really weird piece of terminology when you think about it. And the fact that it spread as much as it did is kind of an indicator of like, okay, a lot of people's philosophy of design and play was, of course, very influenced by Answers in Dragon Magazine or what Guy X was writing in the DM's Guide. And, and we can't de-emphasize computer games. If you go to... Also true. If you go to the 90s, Baldur's Gate, all that stuff. The, the idea of advancing through murder <laughs> is yeah. largely modern. If you go back and read the older games... Uh, in Call of Cthulhu, you don't advance by murder. You advance by using skills and then exercising them. World of Darkness, you have generic XP. And in original D&D, a lot of your tre uh, experience came from treasure, from being able to take rewards back to base and cashing it out. And that's like completely absent from modern In modern D&D, you level up by murder. Yes, there are story rewards, I hear you, but every monster has an XP value attached to killing it. And, and people talk about grinding, the concept of repeatedly murdering things in order to increase my character's abilities to grind is a new thing that wasn't in your traditional games. And a lot of the OSR is about kind of going back to sort of the gold for XP paradigm and being like, okay, what sort of games, uh, if we take this seriously, what sort of games come out of this if we're trying to run a good game. Well, you say that, and then people, I mean, uh, here I'm being negative again, and then people put Morkborg on my table, and like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's what you mentioned about a traditional game might have more ways to interact with the world because a lot of traditional games were a lot more, they were first generation, so they were more inspired by literature or by the real world. Like, they joke about Dungeons and Dragons having 16 different kinds of pole arms in it. If you go read the original Call of Cthulhu, there's a f chapter on 1920s forensic medicine. Here's blood typing. Here's fingerprinting. Because that's what you guys do when you play Call of Cthulhu, right? You blood type and fingerprint things, right? Okay, so there was a lot of, you know, like, what would the lifestyle be like? What would you do? And that's why I said Golden Dawn was one of my favorites. And to extend, I like Delta, the fact that Delta Green set in a contemporary world with real-world organizations and laws. And that, you know, a traditional game is more likely to embrace them. Second generation and third generation games are coming from, well, it's a computer game. It's Grand Theft Auto. It's Final Fantasy. It's World of Warcraft. You are the only real object in this world because you're a player and everything in the world responds to you. And thus, maybe you're a vampire and you go out and suck blood. Or if you're a Delta Green operative, you're above the law. You just go around shooting things. I'm not saying everyone runs the game that way. I'm saying a lot of times uh, you'll get people approach the game of, 
The players were here at session zero and said the theme that they wanted and what they wanted to do. So since we're so focused on storytelling elements and play elements, we're not simulating a real world. We're not treating other people in the world as unreliable actors or self-motivated agents or anything like that. They're just mobiles that yeah. wait to be killed. Yeah, yeah. They're bags of hit Definitely in a lot of the Delta Green games that I've run or played in, like, by all rights, even according to the book, everyone should have gone to jail. Um, but that rarely happens, even though there are rules for that, because it's people aren't interested in it, in playing the courtroom scene, even though that's exactly what would happen. It, it is important to emphasize, Tormson and I, a lot of the games we've played in for Delta Green is in that very particular open table format, which has its own incentives. Wrapped up with it. When I've run longer Delta Green campaigns, that sort of sure. stuff comes up. Yeah, in fact, as the bigger wrapper of all of this, the big issue I've had with the cult games that I've been in is uh, they're, they're not a cult. A cult would mean something that's obscure and unknown. And after you guys have blown up your second gas station, <laughs> <laughs> there would be a file on you. And one of my major issues with all of these games is that it's never really presented that you are supposed to maintain a low profile and you're not rewarded for a low profile. I mean, I don't know if Delta Green, the new edition, is anything for it. But not only, not only, you know, did we go in there and shoot everyone, but there's a newspaper article celebrating our achievement. Like you've already mentioned, like, you know, these are games people play them to have fun, but to me it doesn't feel very occult if we can get away with anything at any time. These are supposed to be the secret teachings. All right, so, and you have recently come out with your own role-playing game uh, in this sort of occult investigation genre that has been a big part of the role-playing game community for a while, like... Going through Call of Cthulhu, Delta Green, World of Darkness, Unknown Armies. There's been a lot of games that have been designed to fill this niche. And you've talked about a lot of your the issues that you've encountered playing through these games over the years. I'm curious how your game fixes them. Well, we have two responses to it. The first game I mentioned is Abyss, which I'm describing as a splatterpunk game. That game we expect you to go full-on against things. We expect you yes. to go ahead and murder them. The two warnings in that game are that um, there is a random power diminishing. This is something I like from Golden Dawn. Your power can randomly decrease when you're using it. So you don't want to use it all the time. What if you need it? The mere act of using it, there's a random chance that the power level drops by one. And, you know, if, so you'll save that for when you need it. But the other one, as I mentioned, was that your power, by using it instead of going crazy, when stressful or bad things happen to your character, you're a monster. It's the abyss. You're a terrible person. You're a monster that tears things limb from limb, or you're a wizard who has power you can barely control. That sort of thing. So when you lose it, you lose player agency. You're taken out of play. You get usually, like, well, it's called the big bomb move. A lot of the characters are you get to do one amazing thing, but then you run off into the night because you're overwhelmed or something like that. You run off screaming or something, or you have to go to a bar to drink your sorrows or something like that. And they have to go get you during the downtime phase. And since I mentioned there's a clock running, you any time we spend going to get people who ran off is going to be time we don't solve. And that was our first deal was we didn't want to kill the players 
we wanted to um, we want you to save innocent people. That was our first response. The other game that we made is we also made a game called <clears throat> Occult Horror, which is a furry-themed game because I make a lot of furry stuff. But that game, I'll be honest, was a direct response to Call of Cthulhu, where in Call of Cthulhu, they assume that you have a sanity bucket, and when that runs out, you go crazy. By the way, Cthulhu doesn't give a shit about you. I mean, I like, what's so scary about Cthulhu? He doesn't care. I mean, if he destroys the world one day, he just does it. You can't t ask him not to, right? I can't, he can't do it until the stars are right anyway. How much agency does he have? Right, so, so, so what's the point of even worshipping them? So we took the opposite tack to that where we uh, wanted to embrace the three-lobed burning eye. Because the premise behind that story in Call of Cthulhu, uh, in the Cthulhu mythos, is that a guy uses a magic item he shouldn't have, and a monster notices him, and then he has to go um, hide in a place while the light's on so it doesn't eat his face. Or the Hounds of Tindalos. Someone has upset the Hounds of Tindalos by traveling through space and time too much. He has to go live in a room that's all round because he can't have any corners, or a hound will come out and eat his face. These are things that if someone described them to you, you would think they were crazy. Right, if I turn off the lights, a monster's going to come in here and eat your face. That's silly. It sounds insane, but you and I know it's true, because if you turn off the lights, a monster will eat it. It's the premise of the story. So, in Occult Horror, we went with the belief that the more you're annoying the Elder Gods, the more you're annoying the Silent Ones, or the ones who live in shadow, the more they hate you. And they're off telling their cultists to go and sacrifice babies or murder people or do horrible things because they're, they're horrible things. They're horrible entities. It's horror. Did I mention that? So the more they're doing that, there's, there's a, a faction system. Have you played a game with a faction system before? Oh, sure. I've played Blades in the Dark. And all right. That. Where, where a faction system where you track what certain... If you, do things, the if you do things the police like, you get positive rankings. If you yeah. do things the police hate, they, they get negatives. There's a faction system of cold horror, not just for the regular people, but also for the entities. And the more the entities hate you, when cultists show up to cast spells against you, they can invoke their horrible entity and get bonuses to cast spells to hurt you. That faction bonus directly translates into a bonus to harm you. And so that, a lot of the Cthulhu stories that we read and enjoy were somebody does stuff that pisses off the cult so they run away and hide. And then when they tell everybody, a oh, weirdo cult's coming to kill me, everyone says, well, you sound crazy. And that is a much more credible threat because the more the players are pissing off these other entities, the more powerful their cultists get to respond to you. And so you might actually be in your best interests to not be too visible mm. and let the cultists know who you are because if they, were, if they see you interfering or report back or get information about you and report that back, they get bigger bonuses to come kick your butt later. And that also, like I mentioned, is also a horror element. You see this in horror stories. And that's what, those are the two approaches we went with the two different games. And I'm, I'm very satisfied with them. Because, to me, they, they, they go back to the known unknown situation. Like, no player should be shocked that if you pissed off Gamogen, the, he lives in shadow, that his, when his wizards show up and say, in Gamogen's name I smite you, that spell has extra power when they use it against you. No one would be surprised by that. You've heard of Lovecraftian horror. Try Rumsfeldian horror. <laughs> I didn't think of it that way. That's pretty great. That's interesting because, yeah...
Like it, Cthulhu doesn't hold a grudge against you. No, he doesn't give a shit. There's like when you're looking at like it's all his cultists that are the problem. That's right. When you're looking at like more modern, like cosmic horror, even like what you're describing reminds me a little bit of some stories. Like um, I just read, I just reread Teatro de Grotesco by Thomas Ligotti. It's like poking the bear gets see the problem. The children of old leech from Laird Baron. I mean, they're not pissed off, but you definitely like the characters go and like they get noticed by the entities and the entities respond which is a huge thing in the in in the cthulhu stories that the idea of being noticed is actually what's killing people not that they're going crazy or even in the case of like legati when he does lean into sort of the cosmic horror stuff there's all it's always tinged with this surrealism where like a large part of the horror is just seeing your what you thought of as reality just melting away before your eyes it's just some giant figure tears right. open a hole in the sky and starts waving at you. And, and, and while, you know, that might spook somebody who watches Black Mirror, oh no, my entire reality is, uh, um, I mean, I always felt that kind of falls a little flat, especially in the 21st century, where, oh wow, the universe doesn't care if I live or die, that's a relief. Whew! So, uh, it's, um, it, it's always seemed weird to me that you'd have these, like, like, like Delta Green's better at it when they, you have bad people like Nazis. They're bad, they have an agenda, we understand that. Mm-hmm. The cults are just, you know, uh, the idea of just a mere worshipper of Cthulhu doing, like, what, why? What, they, what are they going to do to you? They basically dropped out of society. It, it, it's weird. And, and so that's what our two approach is. And I've been very, I'm very happy. We, we streamed a long occult horror game, uh, and I was very satisfied with the way it came out. And the fact that they invoke them in, in your... In, they, the wizards show up and invoke the names of the entities that are mad at you. Plus, also, it makes you feel, I think, a bit more like a horror game because you're, um... The reason why you're not casting spells is because you don't want to appeal to they live in shadow because in order for them to get a positive reputation, for uh, you have to do the evil things they want. And it also explains why the cultists are off doing those evil things. They're becoming more powerful wizards. It sort of gives... It has mechanics backing the whole boons and banes sorts of things that you see with gods a lot and i like that that's cool i like that a lot which once again was an issue we had with delta green it's kind of like yes you have all these mechanicals yeah, like you'll, re- you'll read the book top to bottom and i'll have oh yeah all these mechanics roll these dice here's your education points here's the aging rolls whatever whatever did you roll 16 on your decks okay good <laughs> every 16 decks you shoot first how, that's what matters yeah go we don't care what your app stat is it's never going to come up and, and, you know, in, in other words, yeah, uh, mechanics of the game should go... Unknown Armies is, is more successful at that, I think. Whereas Delta Green really has that problem that it's the RuneQuest combat system, by the way, we're trying to do modern-day horror with it. Well, one of the nice things that 3rd edition of Unknown Armies has that is kind of the killer app of the system is something called the Coercion Subsystem, where basically by a NPC to target those five different sanity tracks... And by basically giving a credible threat, you either do what we want, or you have to take a, you have to take this particular kind of sand damage. You know, the easy one is like pointing a gun at someone for violence, but also like for the self sandy, you can target that by like, by convincing someone that what they're about to do is totally against their moral self-conception. 
Right, and I think when we talk about traditional versus modern games, I think I, uh, that, that's another thing that was always an issue with me in the storytelling is there's talk about murder hobos or murder tourists, that you treat the players yeah. as a self-entity and other things aren't real. And that rings very hollow in a game like Delta Green, for example, where we're supposed to be saving the world. So, in theory, the world has people in it, and we things care... Things we care about, yeah. yeah. We care if they live or die. So, right. And, and so, that's why the old traditional game is we threaten to kill your character. And that always, to me, rang very hollow, because not every GM is going to make good on that. And... Uh, you can only make good on it once. I can only kill you once. Then your character's dead. You have to make another one. Uh, we already talked about the responses that some of the Cthulhu games have where we regularly churn characters. In which case, you have to be in a game where people are regularly churning characters. And everyone knows that. Speaking of other games where used to be Galapagos Islands, even back in the 80s, there were already jokes. Jack Chick makes fun of this, where Black Leaf dies. Have you ever read this? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, the... The old D&D chick tracked. Yeah, Jack Chick accuses D&D of being Satanism, but the plot of the original Jack Chick Satanist, Blackleaf, the character of one of the players, dies, and she's, like, emotionally wrecked and despondent over it. Like, even Jack Chick knew this. And in this era of tell me about your character, their hopes and dreams, describe them in every way, write down your relationships, where every character's treated as a huge entity... Okay, first adventure, oh no, it's Call of Cthulhu. You get shot, 2d6 damage, you're at zero hit points. You're dead, because you die at zero. You know, any shot can kill you instantly. And then some of you might be saying, well, but the negative hit point rules. Okay, you died in two rounds. You could get killed so very, very quickly, and you were supposed to expect that, but I don't think people really do. And to be honest, I don't think that's going to be a compelling story. If you just keep dying every few adventures, you're really not going to get that invested. They either don't expect it, or they do and just don't get invested in their character at all. Right. And, and, and you weren't supposed to. A lot, we, uh, as I'm fond of saying, back then we didn't call them roguelike permadeath games. Back then we called them games. This is, I guess, why Delta Green and Cthulhu has always like, been so leaning towards the one-shot play. Or like being very successful with one-shot yeah. play. Because it's, it's easier to... It, it is less investment into a character that you care about, but you're very like you're right. Like if the character is going to get killed first off the bat, I would I don't usually. This is why I don't. I, but I'm like a nice GM playing Delta uh, Green, so I don't kill them very often. But that's I guess not in the text. That is just me doing homebrew. And what's interesting is how the source books imply that you're going to be dealing with these months long investigations unraveling some grand conspiracy. And that kind of is at odds with, okay, your character is super disposable and can die. Yeah, at any Rune, RuneQuest has that problem too, where where they yeah. they, they yeah. seem to think yeah. you're somehow going to survive. Part of the reason why these games used to have very simple character generation was so if a guy died, you could just roll one up in the fifth yeah. in the ten minutes yeah. it took <laughs> the encounter to get resolved, and that's why. And that's appreciated. That's appreciated because I've played game very lethal games where characters. Right, but you don't see that hours. anymore. Um, because um, and, and, and I've seen I think, it a bit in recent games, but not in story games now. Well, I I don't think there's any besides humor games like Morkborg. I don't think there's any modern game where you can whip a character up in ten minutes. I mean, I guess N maybe Dungeons and Dragons, but Dungeons yeah, and Dragons like is a game that retro clones are the only one that yeah, comes to mind, they, really. Right, and, and and also those games will tell you to be big and involved and. 
if you want, you know, watch the stream games. They don't kill players in the first adventure, even though. They, but that's that, that's kind of a bigger you know discussion. I mean, I, I think I think occult role playing uh, has a lot to recommend it and can be done both as horrors we're describing, where you're killing monsters, and I think it can also be done as self exploration because I think unknown armies op opens itself up to more of that. I know there's other games like Nobilis. I've never played Scion, so I'm not sure how that works. Um, you know, other games might be able to get into that kind of stuff. I do wish there was more games that you employed a cult as self-exploration. I, I think a, mm. a lot of these games are a lot too interested in being a trad game with, you know, you know, we roll dice at things and overcome problems. I really would like to see some compromises. Like, the weird one for me is Wander Home. Wander Home is a game where you're supposed to be veterans returning from the war. And you will be beset with different circumstances, you know, you know, along the way. Like, it's a medieval times, and you're going home, and you might get... And the rules say that if you ever do anything violent, like if you actually attack anyone and stab them or kill them or whatever, you're removed from play. And that's an interesting idea, uh, because I think uh, they don't trust players, so they're just telling you that we want you to do something other than violence, because we have... <clears throat> such a low opinion of you that we think you will do violence. <laughs> so we had to remove the... I don't know. I'm, I'm, uh, I, I might just be being bitter. I would like to see games like where a cult is, you know, used in its traditional means of trying to gain more understanding about your character's world and their place in it. And it would be neat to see some more rises. You know, like if there is a game like that, I'd love to hear about it. So Yeah, using like the, what the uh, occult study is actually supposed to represent on like a philosophical and personal development mm. sense rather than just sort of the aesthetics of it to do the sort of problems first focused approach that trad games l like so often unknown armies has the interesting approach to it where you have different social categories that you can get damaged in yeah but the occult uh, stuff doesn't really tie into that very much and it, re it really should it's for some schools it does for some, but not that often like i can't think of any um adapter avatars that tie into the third edition relationship mechanics in any way. Well, related to Delta Green, there's another BRP game called Pendragon, which has a couple yeah. different versions. Mm -hmm. And in that one, they had, um, I forget exactly what they called it, like virtues, but you had like worldly versus uh, um, mendacious, or you had like justice versus mercy. And you were rated in the instead of having skills, you were rated in these different categories. And if you had to make a roll, you could roll against the category, and it could flux either way. Like if I want to beat someone up because they're a criminal, that's justice, and that directly opposes my mercy stat. Because uh, when justice goes up, mercy goes down. They're paired like that. So I had to convince someone later that oh no, no, I don't mean you any harm. You know how are my points spent? And that. It's an interesting game that you ask a lot of questions, you know, the, the kind of character you express yourself as changes the game. Unfortunately, it's Pendragon, a game no one plays. That is really interesting. Yeah, because I do agree that, especially with a game like Unan Armies, this should be something that is more, like, in the, in the rules, like, explicitly, because, especially with Adepts, when the whole point of them is that they have a, a very specific cracked worldview where they've... Um, which differs makes them different from the mundane, the mundane like empowers uh, their magic. collective unconscious. It empower, powers their magic. There really should be a system of like 
as you say, self-discovery, like, but it doesn't work out that way. It ends up being like, okay, what, how, what is my blast spell? Um, how many charges do I have? It's just another kind of like, uh, set of resources, like another version of roll firearms in a way, which is a pity because like in the setting, at least, these are people who see the world in a very different way, in a way that gives them power, in a way that is, it's all meant to be wrapped up in obsession and desire. Um, and you can say the same thing about avatars in a way, but it doesn't come through with the rules. And I don't know how they'd have to be different rules to have that come through. There's been a couple adept schools that, you know, deal with the shot gauges in particular ways and kind of have stuff tied into that but to go back to pendragon third edition of unknown armies has ba- basically they're the way the various like sand uh pools work is they're also very pendragon-esque binary scales where like for example the less adapted to violence you are the higher your connect stat is the more adapted the violence are the higher your struggle is yeah i mean that sounds like fun I mean, that, that sounds like like really something interesting to try. The times when the occult aspects of the game actually tie into those parts of the system are the exception rather than the rule. And I'm also worried that because people play games to have fun, that a lot of people will avoid... If it's optional to be weighed down, then they won't take it. And uh, Yeah, they, they never do. So, so, yeah. No, I mean, horror, I think we've got covered. Like, I think, uh, like, violence... I think there's plenty of games that offer, you know, good ideas, not, you know... Not just mine, but also I'm a big fan of Chronicles of Darkness. <laughs> I mean, I'll recommend Chronicles of Darkness to folks, and uh, there's a couple, um, I'm sure we could dig. Uh, but um, it's also, like, the idea of occultism, of the idea that your character's personal belief system is powerful enough to affect the universe around them, but what do they actually believe? And, that, mm. uh, and do they have to make any sacrifices in their lifestyle to do it? And if some of the classes have to and some don't. I'm sure Unknown Armies has its power gamer builds as well as its, you know, restrictions. I, it's in the fiction. Like, straight up, uh, uh, one of the official novels, Godwalker, significant parts of the text are dedicated to explaining how the narrator character munchkins in universe. And it matches the mechanics of the game. Well, that's good. Sounds like fun. Something that comes to mind, because, like, adept schools and unarmies armies have a taboo, like, things that, like, you're not supposed to, you can't do, or else you'll lose your magic because it goes against your, like, worldview. It goes against the way, the way that you see the universe working. If you wanted to have a sort of, like, um, a magic system which was more about how you're slowly, like, what are your beliefs and how how are they developing and how is this, like, path you're going down making you more powerful what comes to mind is just like okay every new spell you have comes with another taboo um another thing that you can't do that it will just like the more powerful you get the more restricted you are or the more you differ from the mundane world um or, the, or mundane behavior at least that's just off the top of my head one of the things that came to mind for me was when you're an adept one of your three passions needs to tie into your t- taboo in some way sure yeah I'm looking over. I'm looking at this Pendragon character sheet, being like, "Oh, I could adapt. This could be adapted for unknown." I, I've read through the book. I've unfortunately never had a chance to play it. I think it's one of those games that, like anyone in the game design, is like, "Oh, I love to have a chance to try this," and they never do. I've been lucky enough to play it. Uh, I think it's like in fifth, but yeah. No, also Pendragon's one of those games where they, 
you know, sat down and like there's no magic in the game. People are all upset about that. Why do you have spells? Why are we gonna play this? Um, you know, mundane people are not interesting at all. Yeah, the fact they had that moral. There's um also the Fading Suns game does the same thing, only way, way worse. I've read through the most recent edition of that, and yeah, like the system seems like an afterthought with that game compared to all the setting stuff. I haven't played the most recent edition, but but I could go on and on about, you know, I, I'm obviously I'm an indie games designer and publisher, so obviously I have strong opinions. And that's why I mentioned earlier that the, the, the big problem we're having of, um, uh, are other people in the world real? Because I'm seeing a big push in gaming to not make other people in the world real, like just treating them as mobiles or entities that respond to players. And I think that's a big mistake because that's not why, if I didn't want other entities to be real, I wouldn't be playing tabletop role-playing games. I think it's it's sad when Mass Effect and Dragon Age makes me care more about the NPCs than my tabletop does. Uh, I, I think parts down to like workload it's like, you know, you, you can't be expected, for a lot of games, you can't feasibly ex be expected to do character generation for even, like, the big NPCs they encounter. But there are, like, especially a lot of games nowadays have, like, stats that are very much sort of the roots of the characters as people, rather than just, you know, how strong are they? I, I don't think characters have unique stats. I, I've been addressing uh, the what I've been calling the naughty dog problem. Have you ever played Uncharted or Last of Us? Uh, I've played Uncharted, sure. Okay, so in Uncharted, those thieves, those people who make money by stealing things, cannot kill themselves fast enough. They are so eager to hurl themselves on your bullets. Oh yeah, the, the, the mooks problem. And I, I've played in games that specifically give separate mechanics for disposable mooks. Which... That makes absolutely no sense. Why would every, why would dozens of people who are career criminals want to commit suicide so quickly? This is this is exactly the same thought I had watching movies like Taken and such. I'm just like, why do they keep going after this guy? Um, and so many action movies are like this. I'm like, why don't they just say, okay, we're going to write this problem off? We're gonna give this guy's daughter back to him because the 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 cost to benefit ratio was yeah. Way after the third time, you think they'd learn their lesson? We'll kidnap someone right. else's daughter this time. And that's one of the huge problems. Well, that's the problem I was having with Delta Green, which was well, you could just say they're a cultist, and because they're a cultist and therefore an insane bad actor, they would be more than happy to take a twenty-two pistol and engage a Green Beret armed with a Finval. Oh, thank God these people have no interiority. We can kill them safely. Right, and, and, and also they're cultists, so yeah, we don't even feel bad. I've, uh, I've adapted to killing them. And honestly, like, this is why I tend to prefer how games like something like, say, um, Feng Shui handle it, where it's just like, all right, this is, a, this is just a strapping of the genre, where it's like, okay, there's there, well, these movies. Is it, though? I mean, that that's the problem I'm getting at. Like, it's not me I mean the action movie that. genre. I don't mean the role-playing game. Right. And, and But that's why I'm complaining about it in the action. Like, is Delta Green an action movie game, or is it a horror game? I think in practice, it ends up being action horror above all else. Right, action which, which yeah. isn't the way it's sold to people. No, it is not. A lot of the press yeah. material talks about, it's a desperate struggle. People are going mad all the time. We're not even sure if we're gonna, everything is overwhelmed. And then you play it, and you're freaking Rambo. And it's, you know, that's the, the uh, I think, a bad message. I don't, 
I don't necessarily. Uh, uh, I, I think it, it's also a little harder for gamers. I, I don't. I don't know if video games have done this, but I know the video games do it because it's more fun if things are dying. Like if you're just sitting there running after people, or, or you have to like do stealth. Um, okay, my last ramble. Are you familiar with Apocalypse World? Yeah, I've read Apocalypse World. So Apocalypse. Have you read Apocalypse World Second Edition? No, I have it on my shelf. I haven't gone around to reading it. So Apocalypse World 2nd Edition devotes two whole pages to stealth rules. Interesting, alright. And the and one of those pages is how you should never, ever use stealth in your game. What kind of coward are you? <laughs> what? Alright. What? Uh, the hell? You should confront all of your problems head-on all the time. Only a coward would sneak around. I kind of get it in terms of like sort of the HBO drama sort of thing that Apocalypse World is going for. Where well, uh, definitely, if it's the apocalypse and you're sca- and every day is a struggle to survive as you scavenge. No, the but in the context, of you the should definitely. Broadly, no, yeah, throw yourself in danger. I mean, like it, it's one. That's a that's a different issue of tonal dissonance. But I always thought that was genre funny. logic versus world logic. Yeah, the the actual contempt. They had, and I can understand that, that players might not like that, but to, but you know, a cult is supposed to be about shadowy stuff and getting around, and uh, the idea that you shouldn't clue other, you don't want the cultists to know that you're doing this and clue them in on this. I think was part part of the fun for me, but I can understand uh, how a lot of players have difficulty with it as an idea that they want to think of the cultists as angry orcs ready to engage uh, at any time and you have complete zero sand loss morality uh, totally in the moral right to execute them summarily well speaking of the orcs i'm thinking i was thinking um a lot of the pushback that happened when the with the um are orcs always evil discourse that you saw from uh some sectors is i think because people are comfortable having that category of like these are zombies these are cultists these are orcs they're they're just they're safely in that category of we can kill them and this is the what we do in this game um and it is you see it over and over again there's a a class of entity that is safely killable you don't have to feel bad about it um and you see that in games in horror in like that does ultimately come in through in call of cthulhu and delta green and maybe it should it shouldn't because when you think about it like, it changes it into, yeah, as an action game, it's they're all just moocs. Yeah, see, there was the, there, there was the pushback, uh, as I mentioned, World of Darkness didn't have a sanity system, it had a morality system. Yeah. yeah. So if you were yeah. to kill yeah. someone or manslaughter by action cause someone to die, there would be a random chance that you would get a neurosis, and which would be a debuff. They're unapologetically debuffs. And when I would play that game, I noticed that immediately I was in a different mindset than I was in Delta Green. Because, mm. like, uh, if I saw someone holding my friends at gunpoint, I couldn't just hit them with my car. That's the thing I was thinking about when I was, like, I was in a car in the game driving it. And I'm thinking, I can't just run someone over. I might kill them. Am I willing to take... You know the response, the mental anguish and responsibility. And to me, in that moment, that felt like a horror game, where every, my friends are in danger, and mm. I don't know if I'm willing to go this far to get them out of it. Which, once again, is divorced from what you see in a lot of these Call of Cthulhu and other ripoffs of it, which is anything you do is okay, you're fine, 
the mirror other entities cause hit point damage to you. You passively receive sand loss. It's not something you actively do. I'd say Delta Green is a very sort of Catholic take on it, in a sense, where it's like, they expect you to do all these very horrible things, but they also expect you to feel really bad about it afterwards. Yeah, and uh, or the, the the weird one that always struck out me is is Eclipse Phase, which is the one that confuses me because that that's a transhuman game. By the way, spoilers for all of you, Cthulhu's in it, and he causes I Sandy loss. All right, I mean, like it's not like Sandy loss matters in that game. Really, you just get a new body, pretty much, is my understanding. No, no, no. Sandy loss sticks with you from no, body okay. to body. But it's so oh, it's then so there's dumb. psychosurgery, right? You can get psychosurgery to. Nope. Yeah, oh, okay, never mind. Uh, it's it's so dumb. It's dumb. It's so it, Cthulhu's in it, and it's so dumb. They don't call him Cthulhu, but yeah, it's like aliens exist, and they might destroy the Earth. And it's like, so we're in the future, we can travel through space. I mean, in other words, it's made by people who love Cthulhu. It's made by the guys who make Cthulhu Tech, which is the same, almost the same game. And yeah, it's the sand loss mechanic, and like. Eclipse Phase is supposed to be a horror game, and it completely fails because you're you're immediately you haven't even played the game, and you're immediately talking about, well, can't we do all these other things because it's the future? And it's like no, sand loss that 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 makes the game scary, and and I mean yeah, if you were asking, you can see I'm not happy with this kind of design philosophy, and I don't know why people keep bringing it back up. There has to be some people that it affect that like it's effective horror for like i've been legitimately scared when playing delta green games i've played enough raw call cthulhu to have that experience but you know it's happened but it's also like comes to the question of how much that is rooted in the mechanics versus just gm skill this is where we talked about this earlier so there's a great video by hank green the one of the crash course or sideshow guys where people will put a a disproportionate amount of um, a dislike on a small loss than on a big game. Like, there are some players who will take a two-hit-point loss, you know, will, won't, won't want to lose hit points at all. Like, I've been in games where players are completely paranoid that, that the next shot might kill them, even when they have sitting on 80 hit points. And so the idea of you might lose any sanity at all, and this might kill your character, some players will be on constant edge because they might lose something. And that's fine until another player shows up who does not give two shits. Or is reconciled that. Like, that is acceptable losses to them. And they completely break your game when they do that because you know, you, either they're willing to take the hit or even worse, they built a character around it. Like, I, I'm sure there's a build you can make in Unknown Armies where you could do your stats in such a way that you're inured to almost everything, or or to one specific thing that you keep invoke that you keep invoking and not care about. There's a pretty strong penalty for getting too hardened, where basically you lose one of the biggest boons your character has. It's a little more plastic. I'm, I'm thinking more more like games like Shadowrun, where people are always afraid of losing their humanity, but you could also just drop your humanity to one and not care. Yeah, it's an all or nothing thing, where it's like you either care a lot or you just I don't give a shit about this. I'm not going to worry about it. Right. And those people break the mood. In Unarmies 3rd Edition, you could easily just dump all your identity feature points into resist shocks to violence, resist shocks to self, resist shocks to all of them, and put it at a high level, and then be like, okay, I don't care about anything because I've already got all my resist. Like, I've got the resistance here. So what you're saying is true. Like they would, that wouldn't have the problem of being. I would like to see just a character that. that just is burnt out at character creation. Maxes out everything and then just 
plays the game like that. That could be a interesting little uh, play experiment. Could be liberating, but it also, if you're trying to do an occult or horror game, it, it you already mentioned kayfabe. It breaks the mood because like this person yeah. has seen yeah. what you describe as scary and subverted or ignored it. They're speed running the game, and you know not you know they're not playing along. And that can also become toxic because the other players might pick up on it. And some players yeah. will get upset. Why doesn't he care about going crazy? I care about going crazy. And other players might go, wait a minute, you can just do that? And, and then pick up on it, and then your entire game is ruined. And I'm not a big fan of that in the design category because I can't blame a player for doing that too much. It's like no, the no. contract... Well, I mean, the social contract is supposed to be... You're supposed to be afraid of loss, a good game design has to somehow make you afraid of loss. Or you shouldn't be playing the game. Like I mentioned, if, you, if you're going to make a game where you're saving innocent people and your player doesn't care about innocent people, then you probably should be playing a different game. There need to be stakes, and those stakes need to be shorn up by the mechanics in some way. Right. We buy in. We need stakes and buy in. We need something you can lose and something you care about, and we all need to agree on what that is. But we don't, you know, we have to be upfront about it. And and that to me has been an issue with a lot of these occult games. Like I said, it's like if you write this off or if you know math enough to inure yourself to it, they're not going to affect you. And that's a problem with the game. Whereas a lot of people might tell you that's a problem with the player. And I don't agree. It's a problem with the player. Honestly, Thompson, I think one of the reasons I might like third edition so much is because it's moved away from a lot of this stuff in a way. It's moved away from the investigation and horror, which is parts of an armies I like, but third edition kind of implies those are optional things to include in your game if you want, in favor of emphasizing the gonzo occult crime sandbox angle of things. Yeah, and I'm a big fan of that as well, even though like if I read well, second ed UA or first ed, I can see there's a big difference in what they sort of intended players to do. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Whereas, like my games in Ananabi Third Edition don't resemble that at all. I'm almost like I have a big thing where I'm just like, don't, don't give me any procedural objectives because I don't think this game is good for procedural, like solving a mystery stuff. Even though from a like at a cult like discovering the mystery sort of thing, it should be. But I find that like when they when there's a game where people are in Anonami's at least it focuses on like finding a mystery, uh, solving a mystery. It becomes it's not strong at that. It's it's stronger at like going yeah. out and doing crazy shit and dealing with the blowback. Whereas it doesn't have the, the the rule support. The rules do not support like really entertaining procedural play. The way I'd put it is, uh, Rafferty, you know sort of the um, classic Call of Cthulhu story of like, okay, we've gone through all of the modules and like accrued all these grimoires and spells and stuff. Now we're using our knowledge of the arcane and the things from beyond the stars to, you know, create portals to make our bootlegging operation. Uh, that, that usually doesn't show up that much because, like, as we mentioned earlier, spells are usually a losing bargain. Or your characters die before they have a chance to set up their, um, to set up their bootlegging op. Golden, Golden Dawn was a little bit better about it because, um, yeah, I mean, you could... Go, Golden Dawn is hilarious because of the way you game the system because, uh, yeah, you, ra you deliberately go through certain techniques to raise your power so you don't go crazy. The scenario I described is 
what Call of Cthulhu turns into over time when you have a permissive permissive keeper. I mean, eventually, if you had an organization like they describe, you, in theory, you would eventually accumulate enough good manuscripts and you could weed out the terrible spells from the good spells and then actually use these for personal gain. Yes. So, third edition of Unknown Armies, at least from what we've played and run, it's kind of designed for that scenario, but on purpose. As you should. That's what Unknown Armies is about. But, like, not even with the horror elements very much at this point. It's just about being wizards in a often organized crime-tinged uh, occult community. You also mentioned occult community. Like One thing that usually turns me off about these games is we're not interacting with normal people. Like If you were to set up your own occult crime ring, the mundane crime people would take notice that you were cutting in on their turf, and they would respond to it. But in a lot of these games, it's usually my experience that we're the occult guys, we run into the other occult guys. And so we're in this Saturday morning cartoon land that's completely divorced from mundane activities that if we're committing crime, you know, money and real estate and that sort of thing, we're impugning on the mundane reality. The mundane reality would respond to us. I'd say, at least in my experience, UA is decent at that. The, the co every game I've played of yours, Thompson, uh, or seen you run, um, the, the cops are at least like something that like you keep in mind. Where it's like, okay, what 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 what's going on with the cops here? Uh, are they clued in? Is there something preventing them from caring? I I do have the issue. Well, I don't know if it's an issue. It's just a style of like. I will tend to fill in any blanks with yeah. like, well, there's something it's magical easy. here. It's there's something supernatural here. It's like, I end up with like, it, it, it ends up, like, I had, I end up with this, this strange melange of different supernatural elements colliding into each other. Um, which is fun, but I do sometimes feel I'm like, I should run a game that's more mundane because I'm missing out on that. Because what you brought up about like, yeah, if you're a magical crime guys, the mundane crime guys that come after you, that's something that's canonical. Uh, sort of in Unknown Armies with how um, the Mafia was super anti-wizard because they had bad experiences with adepts back in the day. Um, so it's something that you could you could do in Unknown Armies, but I, people, I guess, don't. I'm curious, Rafferty, how did you address that problem in these two occult investigations slash role-playing games that you worked on? Uh, in, in Abyss, it's an action horror splatterpunk game. It's a Hellboy game. Uh, the we did make an emphasis on unreliable narrators, which is very uh, is something difficult in a role playing game, which is the idea that you could interview someone who tells you something that isn't true, which is different from them lying to you. They might have seen something different, or they might be mistaken, or they might be reporting hearsay, and. Uh, Abyss is built on the um, Powered by the Apocalypse framework, which has a very good framework for, uh, I'll just call this reading a situation, where players can ask questions and get answers, and importantly, they get bonuses to later roles on the questions that they've asked. Which means if you ask a question and you don't get the right answer, or you get an incomplete or an answer that you know is complete fabrication, that doesn't necessarily matter. You can still get a bonus to deal with it later. So if you ask someone, who do you think is the killer? And they say, well, it's Old Man Johnson. I'll get a bonus to deal with Old Man Johnson later, whether they're the actual killer or not. That includes a bonus to realize they're not the killer. All right, interesting. And, and that works uh, 
uh, you know, very well. Um, and in um, occult horror, one of the, I, I don't want to get too thorny here, but one of the problems is, you know that real people believe in the supernatural. Yes. Okay, like, like people believe angels, some people will believe angels are real, or that alien people abduction. People believe in a ton of stuff, yeah. Right, so um, in occult horror, which is basically 1920s and 30s themed, it's that era, it's the Cthulhu era, um, there will be people who believe in ghosts and seances and uh, Karnaki's electric uh, device for communicating with the dead and spirit radios. We have ghost hunter shows now that are doing the same shit they were doing in the 20s. Yeah. And so... Basically, and so, exactly. just right. miniaturized. And so we, in that one, we put in, instead of doing the Cthulhu route of making all the spells, like weird-ass stuff like Flesh Ward or Dust of Lang, we put in stuff like vitalism and okay, animal magnetism okay. and the clairvoyance and remote viewing that were the things that people believed might actually be the supernatural of the day. Uh, including okay. my favorite, photography. The ability to project your thoughts on the photographic film. Nice. Did you know Yuri Geller claims that's one of his powers? Yes, I do, actually. Uh, Ken Height and the Robin Laws podcast did, like, a bit on this at one point. Oh, I, that, that cracks me up. Okay, so, yeah, that's one of my favorite. You, ne you never see that. That's in our role-playing game. I never, I've never seen that in other role-playing game. The ability, like, Yuri Geller does it, everyone. He's never said he can't. Yeah, so, basically, in this setting, spiritualism is true, and it works. Uh, well, it can be, but the, see, the, the faking it's also popular, and so we mention in the book that a lot of people will be faking this, but some people will be legit, and you can't tell who's fake and who's real unless, you know, uh, it, it, you know, they're actually getting good results or not. I mean, if the guy says he talked to a ghost and says it's here, and it was here, how do you know they're lying? But, uh, so we emphasize that, and also, while we did have weird spells that are in the book, they're just called rituals and stuff, uh, spoilers, some of them are outright lies. Nice. Uh, which is how we, like, in Cthulhu, you might get, like, summon Biaki or whatever that will summon something. And in the text, we had stuff that, like, oh, this, you know, summon aerial servant. This summons an aerial servant. Uh, spoiler, it summons something completely different. And in the monster's write-up, it says, oh, it will pretend to serve you. It will pretend to be bound. We snuck that in there because that's that's another thing we wanted. We wanted this to be malicious and stuff like Cthulhu stuff is like not usually actively malicious. It like doesn't care about you or it might destroy you because it it can. I mean, I don't think the ghouls are or I don't I'm, I don't know ghouls or deep ones might actually be, but the, the, the emphasis on that is an uncaring universe that it's be, that if you it was better not to know about this stuff. We have actual lies in the in the text and malice, so you. To establish early on that you can't trust it, that a lot of this, that a lot of magic has written into it something that's in the advantage of the original spell maker to do something that's not in your best interest. And many times the only way to find that out is to actually use it, or it's implied you could find lore. And, um, you know, that was in there. We also had tried to have stuff like, uh, um, Hastor's Bargain is the one I normally think of. Hastor's Bargain is a spell in some of the editions of Cthulhu where your power goes up every year, but there's a random chance that Hastor changes you into, quote, a form more suitable for his purposes, unquote. Yeah, Hastor's Unspeakable Oath, where the magazine gets its name from. Okay, oh, sorry, that's Hastor's Unspeakable Oath. Eert's Bargain is the other one. My bad. Okay. I've just lost all cred. Um, right, 
I might be wrong too. I don't remember the names of like eighty different Cthulhu spells. I remember summon fish. There you go. Yeah, and and so uh, there we tried to do a lot of the stuff in there. Like we were highly influenced by some of the editions of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. Okay. Like second I edition Roleplay yeah, cool. is really good about giving you spells. Uh, they they'll, they'll let you get more power for more backfire. Yeah, they're they're a double. They're inherently a double edged sword. Well, there's, there's dark magic. It's one of my favorites. Dark magic is you get an extra die to roll whenever you cast a spell. But anytime you roll doubles on dice, there's a bigger chance that it blows up. So it's literally just an invitation to explode. And you know that's you, funny. And, but it's more power, and and we're gonna give it to you for free. Isn't that great? With our um, fingers crossed behind our back. Yeah. And that to me feels like horror because it's like they're offering you it, it's that it's that Faustian bargain. They're offering you something in return. It, it's where I think some of the other games fall off a little bit because it's usually you just buy your stats to a higher number and then you get because my stats are higher, I get more power. And so I want more experience points to get more stuff. And I think if you really want to capture that kind of horror feeling, it should be taking greater risks or greater sacrifices in return. It should be that, speaking of that small loss thing we talked about before, it, it should be sanity loss or backfire is something that we're much more worried about, and we don't know what it's going to be. Like in Call of Cthulhu, that's a good rule, mm. that sanity loss from a spell is random. You don't know how much it's going to be until you actually cast it. Yeah. It might be one. That's I remember it. there was one time I was playing in a King Yellow <laughs> scenario. I saw him take off his mask. I lost two sand. It was great. That's the luck of the draw. It's interesting that you brought up like the trap rituals, um, which makes a lot of sense from a horror standpoint. But it reminded me of something I did. I added to the fan Mac attacks source book. Are you familiar with Mac attacks from Unknown Armies, Rafferty? Uh, I, I don't think so. Okay, so that was a, it was a cabal of wizards who all work at McDonald's, and they have the goal of making the world a better place by putting magic into happy meals and things and handing them out and they have this whole thing of they're the they're the, uh, the good guys faction I, sort I, of i thought those were characters from ramen aspirin's myth adventures please do go on <laughs> uh anyway so i wrote a um i've been working on some source books for these and i wrote one with the help of really helpful other writers as well and one of the things i had in there was the trap the trap rituals but it was the other way around because mac attacks wants magic to be accepted and happy and everyone to have magical powers and they don't like evil wizard cabals so they invented rick rick rituals well rituals which are basically they make rituals that are just like they're sold as this is the dark spell that will help you slay your enemies but it's basically just a rick roll when you go through all the effort of like doing the ritual this evil cabal just gets like rick astley or or Rick and or Rick from Rick and Morty telling them some bullshit, and that that I guess that it's not horror, but it makes sense within the game. But that's sort of how it ends up. You know, Anunnaki's playing. That that was kind of the issue. I mean, like I said, I'm no fun. Like that's kind of the issue I have where it's silly. I think uh, like one of the one of my favorite spell. If I can toot my own horn, one of my favorite spells from occult horror is something called the Suffering Deferred. And the way that spell worked was anytime you took damage, you subtracted one or two points from it. You just took one less point of damage every single time. And in that game, damage is rated like one to five. So that's a huge boost. You could literally be immune to a fist or a knife fight with that. Mm -hmm. But what's not in the fine print is it says, by the way, if a wicked event goes off, the spell will expire. 
take all the damage, all the damage the spell has ever deferred for you as one giant single hit. And wickedness is a condition in the game that uh, is if anyone rolls triples, uh, well, in certain circumstances, but you can all, there's also spells that just cause it to happen, like you can just make it happen. So in other words, there's like a random event anytime anyone is rolling dice for any reason, there's a random chance that the spell will just expire. And the more damage it's, like imagine, imagine Flesh Ward from Call of Cthulhu, except instead of just stopping two points of damage or just adding hit points, imagine if before the, you know, unless you can get the spell dispelled, imagine if one day when you rolled a fumble, you suddenly got hit with all that damage as a single large hit. What you're describing, these sort of uh, spells, it those are horror, like yeah, these the, are things of horror games. And this is why I feel that Anonami's has moved away from being a horror yeah, game, as you brought honestly, up before. It's, 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 it's a Gonzo Wizard game, and that's good too. But there are then the question becomes: Why should it be sold as a horror game? It can be played as a horror game, but ever, is it ever? Third edition wasn't really sold as a horror game, in my opinion. But Under Armies, the first edition was kind of sold as a kind of a wacky horror game. That's why I yeah. mentioned like Warren Ellis and Grant Morrison and Garth Ennis and that kind of wacky type. David Lynch. David Lynch is well, a not so much. Standard. Maybe David Lynch, but I, I don't well, know. Well, Twin Peaks, I know, is like a big influence. Yeah, but I don't know if you've ever read like Gross movies. Point Blank or Thessaly or Dicks or um, Invisibles. Army. That that kind yeah, of stuff. the Invisibles is the, the big one. That that kind of stuff that is both kind of like you know horrible things happening to people, but also kind of silly jokes at the same time. Which yeah. hey, people who like that will find that the sort of thing they like. You can do absurdism and horror just as easily as you can do it in comedy. Uh, so, yeah, it, 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 it can work for some people, yeah. So, but what you're kind of getting at with all this um, stuff with your spells is kind of at the heart of why I find horror such an appealing genre to run games in is because it's such a great way to generate interesting decisions. Mm -hmm. Those Hobson's choices and those Faustian bargains are... Very fertile ground for horror, but also very interesting choices to agonize over at the table. And and what I submit is they're all too rare. Like I've been complaining about yeah. games like Delta Green or Eclipse Phase where sanity law, you know, they're, it's passive. A monster showed up and drained you of sanity. Uh, the only Faustian bargain you made was to play today. Uh, yeah. You know, or as you already mentioned, like, oh, we found a book. Well, we don't read it. This is like a joke that that's old. Like, we don't mm. read books. They could make us go insane. It's like, well, what if we yeah. did read it? Then we would learn a spell that we can't possibly cast that would also make us go crazy. Nope. Into the fire it goes. And mm. you know, yeah, I would agree with you. The the real it can be very exciting in gaming in general to be making these Faustian bargains and the idea of um, you know like, like these kinds of risks. So yeah, we re I really would like to see it getting away from passiveness, where we show up and we torture your character in front of you, you lose hit points, lose sanity, whatever, and more towards, you know, what I've, what I've been seeing in some of the better, uh, more games, which is, okay, I'll give you what you want, but you'll have to bargain with me or do something horrible or take a terrible risk in the first place. That gets you on edge. That gets you the tension. I completely yeah, agree. Uh, I I, th I think it's a little difficult to to um, uh, it's difficult to improv. I think is one problem that game masters have to come up with it on the fly. Um, it's one thing I've, in, I've enjoyed about seeing uh, powered by the apocalypse games. 
had the mentality of what we've been calling the hard bargain, which was basically in, in, in those games, if you roll 10 or better, you get what you want. But if you roll 7 to 9, you're in that bargaining category. Now, it could just be that you bargain that the circumstances are more favorable to you. Like, okay, I'm shooting. Well, it's dark. You miss. You know, or, you know, I'm shooting. Well, he's in the open, so he's hit. If you had cover, you would have missed him. But there could also be, I'll let you hit him, but you'll run out of ammo in the process. You know, uh, you grab onto the ledge, but you drop your pistol in the process because, you know, you had to leap for it. Those sorts of things that get folks in the moment and, and feel more like they're involved with the story and, and that they're involved in it. Uh, I'm, I'm glad to see this kind of push away from treating the horror as passive, as in, I just told you there's a monster here. Of course that makes your character closer to death. It, you know, that, that's just very passive. I understand why it happened to a certain degree, though, because, you know, you read horror fiction, you watch horror movies, and the protagonists in that are usually pretty passive. So there were some genre-specific challenges that came with translating that to role-playing games in a satisfying way. I, I, I'm, I'm really going to assert, because I'm not alone in this, that the original Call of Cthulhu design decision of your character dies a slow death is very much an outdated old-school tradition, because you saw that in a lot of other games. Rollmaster, which was a challenger to D&D, had um, uh, magic poisoning, which was defined by the rules as incurable. Uh, you had Legend of the Five Rings, where you had a taint stat that any time you're exposed to evil, that goes up, and then when it hits a certain number, you just die. Uh, there were the, uh, like I said, they didn't call that roguelike permadeath. It was just That's what games are like. We needed to compel, we needed to introduce new mechanics to kill you, and we already talked about the, um, I think we did, about the Watsi warehouse that was filled with Birthright and Red Steel, which were more D&D rules for poisoning you to death. Well, not, not so much Birthright, but Red Steel did that. There were more games of like, hey, if you buy this book, it's a new rule for slowly killing your PCs. By the way, it was already D&D, so we had rules for fast killing them. Would you like more rules for killing them? And GM said, well, not really. And players said, hell no. And those didn't sell. And now we're in a different era where every book empowers players. Like, if you're playing D&D, they don't, you know, they sell you know, a new martial handbook or a new Volo's Guide to classes will give you more and better powers not new rules for killing yourself and you know i i think horror needs to respond to that as well it's an interesting balance to strike between you know maintaining the horror atmosphere while also giving players you know the empowerment that they want to at least to an extent that's that core dilemma that i also find very um fascinating in horror role playing is that role playing games are so much about player empowerment and it's kind of, to a certain degree, the expectation, and I think that's a good thing overall, but then horror is so frequently about disempowerment. It's about, and riding that line is something that I find very engaging. It, it's definitely a problem because you can't really sell a player a book that will make them less powerful. I'm not going to pay 20 bucks to nerf my character. And I, I think the, like, the core appeal of Call of Duty for so long was just people that enjoy that role-playing of slowly going nuts they enjoy playing a character degrading that's mm. something they find fun but that's also a kind of a niche appeal it, it can be and and also i think a core appeal that can't be dismissed is uh if you want to play a game where you're a mundane person who can be killed by conventional means um first of all you have to throw D, &D out the window 
because like all any D and D or D and D alike are all gonna have level two, level three, level four characters that have like forty or fifty hit points and can bounce bullets off of their faces. So you have to throw that out. And Call of Cthulhu, the BRP system is old. It's been around for a long time, and it's been translated into many different languages. And its system is very easy to understand. Like if I have a pistol of forty percent, my odds of hitting are. 40%. So it's really, you know, easy to grasp and at that level it's pretty core simple. And that's why it's got a very broad appeal mm. to it. I mean, some of the other issues are uh, um it's incredibly lethal. Like if you want to play a game with just normal people who die or or can be killed by mundane means, you're pretty much your only options would be either Call of Cthulhu or World of Darkness. I know some people might start saying, "Well, what about Fate?" And it's like, "No." Because fate, you'd have to no, wade through not. 500 pages of rules, and or or fate slower, is 200 pages of rules, and even then, some of those are super powered rules. You there, you can't really just pick. The, maybe Spirit of the Century, you could pick up and start doing it. And even that's kind of action oriented pulp. If you wanted to play mundane people or reasonable people, Call of Cthulhu is has a huge tradition and is very popular. Fate, I mean, in my experience, whether or not you live or die is basically down to can you convince the GM well enough to let you live. <laughs> this is a great episode about furries in the Unknown Armies universe. <laughs> yeah, I was waiting for you guys to, to bring up the furry part. Yeah, well, I, about 45 minutes and I realized, like, we've still barely touched on furries, but what we're, we're talking about is honestly, I think probably more interesting to our average listener so let's just keep talking about uh, it i've seen furries they're not you know like i didn't disabuse you of the notion that most furries don't have fursuits so yeah. uh, but yeah. I, yeah. I would be but... happy to come back and talk about fursuits but as you can see you know, uh, you've you have some very uh you have a lot of experience with the, like i felt a little bad because i i didn't enjoy unknown armies and i'm not a fan of delta green but i'm glad to hear that you know like you're enjoying the game and and you've got perspective on it like you know why you enjoy it and we both agree that these are pitfalls but they can be avoided and people can still have fun with these things and uh and no this was this was a great discussion so don't feel bad because like yes we this is an unknown armies podcast by name and often by topic but yeah we often use it as a jumping off point to discuss stuff from occultism stuff from conspiracy theory and just sort of the occult investigation role-playing subgenre in general we've talked about other games on here before yeah so don't no i think i think it's uh you've made me want to take a, a new interest in it so thank you for that it was a very good uh discussion on horror game design yes and thank you very much for coming on and you're someone that's obviously very experienced in this in a way that i'm not i can't speak for torrenton so much but yeah like i've only been in this hobby for about 10 years you've been in it for as i crumble into dust been gaming uh for for quite a while uh i've met robin laws so and ken height you've been gaming since the soviet union Yes, gaming since nuclear paranoia. I started with the D and uh, Errol Otis box set, like a lot of people, the Moldvay version of the rules. Well, so this was a lovely discussion, Rafferty. Uh, we might have you on at a later point to actually talk about furries. I might be pleased. So th thanks again for having me. So um, I'm often on uh, Ractus.tv uh, or or Twitch.tv/slash Ractus, R-A-K-T-U-S 
where we stream games. We also do our own podcast called Notes from the ALF, where uh, other people who uh, are much more sensible opinions than me also talk about tabletop gaming. And also we sell Ironclaw on SanguineGames.com. All right, we'll include links to all those in the description. All right, well, thank you again so much for coming on. Thank you.